0: Which players are overperforming, which are underperforming, which are just kind of interesting? I'll ask Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 1st. It's show number 19 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, discussing players and players and more players. We'll also have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the returns to action of Cincinnati closer Razel Iglesias, Milwaukee shortstop Orlando Arcia, and more player news from the senior circuit. And from the American League, Jock Thompson, we'll look at the returns of Oakland outfielder Chris Davis, Texas third baseman Adrian Beltre, and other American League news. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Twins shortstop prospect Royce Lewis. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Miami starting pitcher Sandy Alcantara. And in our Pitcher Matchups segment, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Cubs left-hander Mike Montgomery in New York and the Mets to face Jacob DeGrom, as well as all the other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about some surprise players. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about some alternative categories for pitching. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's June. We can stop exercising excruciating patience and start panicking. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: As always, it's a pleasure to be here, Patrick.
0: Well, before we start talking about baseball, I know you're a a big hockey guy. Uh, We've talked about that in the past. The Stanley Cup final round is underway. What's been your take on the amazing success of the expansion Vegas Golden Knights?
2: What a finals. I I thought the first game of the finals was one of the best Stanley Cup final games I'd ever seen. I think when people make those lists, they tend to shave them towards the overtime games because they're just maybe a little bit more dramatic, but I thought the pace was unbelievable in game one. Then game two was a great game, too. A one-goal game with lead changes, best part of sports. I, I, you learned with with Vegas with the expansion thing. I mean, I, I know that there was a previous expansion team that made it to the finals, but that was when hockey realigned. And it, I think all the West teams were pretty much expansion teams, so it, it doesn't really count. They learned, and this is a you know, we go back to Billy Bean. This is always a skill in fantasy or in real life or in business is try to find underappreciated assets. You know, they found a guy in this Carlson uh, forward who was hardly playing in Columbus, you know, who was basically a third or fourth liner, and they, they thought, you know, maybe this guy can score some goals. I don't think anybody thought he'd score 43 goals, have 78 points, score on 23% of his shots. I mean, that's far what they expected. But, I mean, the skill, Billy Bean's skill was trying to say, okay, maybe Major League Baseball, well, he has many skills, of course. But one of the things that Billy Bean did very well, which is what Moneyball is really all about, is that on-base percentage at the time seemed like an underappreciated asset. It seemed like the weakness and and, uh, how people were evaluating players. And so they tried to manipulate that. And I don't know if there's necessarily a stat I can point to, although maybe Vegas has some intel that they're not sharing with us. But they were very good at finding players who were underappreciated. And then they just got lucky with, I think they established a culture really quickly that the players bought into. I think they happened to fall into a bunch of players who, for whatever reason, the cohesion worked out. You know, hockey is a much different sport than baseball because baseball is mostly about individual one on one. Um, you know, interactions where a game like hockey or a game like basketball, you how you play with your teammates, I think, means a lot more. There's also been tons of baseball teams who didn't like each other. It didn't really matter. Where well, I think if you have a hockey team or a basketball team or a football team that has all sorts of dissension on it, I think that's going to really affect it because you just need to get along. You, you, there's a certain teamwork element to those sports that isn't necessarily inherent in baseball. When you're at the plate, nobody else is helping you. Or when you're pitching, you know. Until the ball is hit, you know, it's really just you against the batter. But, yeah, it's all about finding underappreciated assets, and Vegas did that. And I don't think there's anything fluky about their success. I I am rooting for the Capitals just because I feel like if anybody's been a Washington Capitals fan, they've suffered, they've wondered why Ovechkin never made it to the finals, why they couldn't beat the Penguins ever. And I I just feel like I'm a little bit more sympathetic to that story. But by the same token, I mean, look at what Vegas has been through, a horrible tragedy right on the eve of the season and this has given that area something to be excited about, and uh, so, I mean, if Vegas wins, I'll be happy for them. If uh, the Capitals win, I'll be happy for them, and I think this is going to be a six- or seven-game series with an extremely high rate of of play. Anybody who's listening who's like, why are they even talking about all this hockey? Just check out an NHL Finals game, especially now that the NHL Finals will not be. One of the problems with Game 1 is it went up against the Golden State-Houston basketball game, and I know a lot of people wanted to watch that, so uh, you may have missed the first game, but even if you're a casual hockey fan or not a hockey fan at all, I think you'll be surprised at just how this game is not, it's not a boring game. It's not a bunch of dump and chase and a bunch of whistles. I mean, the pace has been incredible, and I think you'll really be surprised at how much you enjoy it. And plus, you know, now that HD television is a standard in everybody's life, a hockey broadcast is much more enjoyable than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago.
0: It is. I think they could do a much better job taking advantage of the HD format and the HD um, visual clarity. They could, for instance, stop showing ice level shots and maybe hang a camera underneath the underneath the clock to show uh, from behind so you could see shots the way you see a center field shot of a, of a baseball pitch. It has been a terrific series. The first game was very exciting. And Scott, I thought it was interesting that after the game, Players from both sides and officials from both sides said they thought that neither team played what they wanted to, to play. That is, they were they were focusing on defense, but instead it was fire wagon hockey, as you mentioned, long cross-ice passes, uh, very exciting breakaway sequences where a breakaway at one end led to a breakaway at the other end, and great goaltending, and, and uh, despite the 6-4 final score, there was a lot of great goaltending. It was a tremendous hockey game, and I think it has the potential to be a tremendous series
2: totally agree but you're, you're right that when we see a game you know the fire wagon word is, is perfectly chosen the fans love that i love that even as a you know i'm a hockey quote-unquote purist and then i go way back with the sport i can i can enjoy a one nothing a two one game if it's got a good pace too but coaches are always going to look at when the other team scores it's just it, they're always going to think like okay this defenseman was out of position the goalie missed the angle uh, we didn't get a clear, you know, a lot of times goals are, are made because there's been a turnover in, in in your own zone, you turn the ball, the, the puck over in the middle of the rink, and it's hard, just a coaching mentality is always going to be, how can we iron that out? What did we do wrong? Was this shift too long? Was this, you know, decision in our own zone a bad decision? You know, are we breaking down structurally in a certain way? Um, so it's just, I think it's just coaching nature that when you have a high-scoring game like that, the both sides are going to think like, oh, wow, how do we allow all these goals? How do we allow all these not just goals, but scoring chances, odd man rushes, that type of thing. But I think, you know, I think hockey would be fine if we had more 6-4 games anyway. I mean, I think what thing I'd like to do, and I, I hate to throw this kind of cold water on hockey because it's been such a fun year, and it's going to be a great finals. It's already been a great finals, and we have all these wonderful storylines, but I think the goaltending equipment has just gotten so far out of hand. I, I know you have to protect the goalies, and these guys really shoot the puck hard. I mean, they, you know, so you, you got to have better equipment than maybe they had 30 or 40 years ago. But the size of, like, the waffle and the goalie is so huge, and, and, and the catching glove is, could be like a sleeping hammock, you know, <laughs> in the off season you just put it in your backyard. I mean, those things are so huge. I feel like in the old days, the great goaltenders were had to be more athletic with their saves. And not that these goalies aren't athletes, but a lot of times goaltending comes down to I'm in position, I've got a ton of equipment on me and the position is going to stop the puck. So I, I would like to see if hockey maybe get a little bit better with interference. I think I think they let too much clutching and grabbing go. And some people have said to me, Well they call interference about the same amount they used to. I said, Yeah, but they just interfere more and they you know it's harder to get an interference penalty, but you still get some of them anyway. I think if they Made it when expansion came into the NHL. They really wanted those teams to have a chance, and they basically let them clutch and grab as much as they wanted. And, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like if we let this, if we opened up hockey, I love hockey anyway, but I think hockey could really explode with some of the young talent they have, and and this Vegas story maybe get some casual fans drawn into the game. And you know, Crosby and Ovechkin are still at high levels of play. And you know, look at Edmonton, the talent they have, and McDavid is just a wonderful young player. They haven't really put together yet, but they're going to eventually. I think a hockey golden age could be coming, but I think a couple of tweaks would help it a little bit.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, uh, I've been talking about and thinking about what the Rays are doing with this opener gambit of starting games with high-skill relievers and then turning things over to some lesser lights among the rotation. First of all, what do you think of the idea in general?
2: It's, it's interesting. I mean, the idea is, to attack when you see something you can— like, this is a very specialized situation where Romo's very good against righties, and we saw the Angels had a lineup stacked with righties early. So that's a great time to use them. What I'm not sure of—I I should probably know this, but baseball, because the starting pitcher is always designated ahead of time, it's not like a hockey thing where it's like the home team has the last line change. Is there a rule in baseball that some team needs to designate its starter or its lineup before somebody else? Or I don't really know what the rule is of that because if, say, the Angels knew or a team knew that Romo was going to start for the Rays, they might just say, okay, good. Here's a lefty, here's a lefty, here's a lefty. Or at least maybe what we'll end up seeing is just more of that lefty, righty, lefty, righty stacking for teams that can do it. Maybe they'll be more premium on trying to find switch hitters because they give you perfect lineup balance. Because the, what you don't want. Remember the Phillies with Charlie Manuel, where he used to kind of blindly put three lefties in a row, and and I guess Chase Utley didn't really have much of a platoon disadvantage, so maybe that wasn't that big of a deal, but Ryan Howard was terrible against left-handed pitching, I think Ibanez might have been on that team, and he would have had natural platoon splits, so Charlie Manuel was at some point giving up a huge advantage to any team that had a decent left-handed reliever, but... Um, the Rays obviously are not a team with financial advantages. Uh, they're probably not a team that's going to contend this year. They've been around 500 most of the year. So that's, a t- that's the type of team that should be tinkering, that should be trying new things, that should be kicking stuff around. And uh, I welcome them doing it. One of the things they need, though, to do this, Romo probably you know is okay with this because he's later in his career, he's making money already. But if you were to try to sell a young pitcher on being the starter, the opener, you have a guy who can only lose the game and not win it, if you do that a bunch of times, that guy's going to end the season with a bunch of losses, and he can't win these games. And you just need to have the player on board with that. And I, I know maybe some guys would be cool with it. Some guys wouldn't. Some guys you know, don't care how they're used. Some guys are already getting good money. Some guys are trying to get to that good money. So you, you need players on board. You need them to be okay with it. Um, but I think it's fascinating. I think, it's again, what teams should be trying to do is What is an underserved or underappreciated angle in this game? How can we get an advantage? We don't have a payroll or a salary structure or a resource structure like the Cubs or the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers. We need to do something else. We need to be smarter. I'm not sure if this move will ultimately end up working out, but I love the fact that they're trying it.
0: I think it's interesting too. There's already been some consternation in fantasy circles about how to play the the idea of this opener being only in there long enough to not get a win. So it it makes it very difficult to figure out where to put your... streaming pitcher in it may even have ramifications for dfs and uh, we also have a roster management issue in leagues that have weekly moves because you look at the uh, you look at the week ahead and you see the if they are obliged at all to, to tell you who the starting pitcher is going to be in the case of uh, anybody using this system as you said he's not a starting pitcher he's an opening pitcher and he might be gone after four outs
2: right also i think todd solo was talking about this the advantage, if you can figure out who that second pitcher is, especially if he's going to go long, like I think what Yarborough was, guy for Tampa Bay who was pitching extended. I think maybe Steve Gardner made this point too. You know, a guy who was coming in as the second pitcher, so now he can theoretically win the game. First of all, you might inherit just like a five nothing lead, so that, it might be an easy win for him. Or you know, right. you win the game just over the course of an extended appearance, you would get all the benefit of being the quote unquote starting pitcher without having that opening risk that the opener is taking on. So uh, if we were to identify somebody who was regularly going to be the longer person who was the uh, second pitcher on, that guy would become really valuable.
0: You have a really uh, interesting and active Twitter life, uh, and I'd like to talk about some of the tweets that I've seen you make recently. Uh, you had a tweet about Robert Gesellman's charmed season so far. You noted that the Mets wisely used their closer uh, Juris Familia in the eighth inning recently to take care of the meat of the Atlanta order, and that left Gaselman to collect the save in the ninth, mopping up the lower part of the order. Then you said you'd be surprised if this happens regularly in the future. If the Mets figured it out this time, why can't they and others figure it out next time?
2: This is all, a guess, on my part. And remember, Mickey Callaway, their manager, was, I believe, part of the Cleveland staff when they started using Andrew Miller as their wipeout guy. And, you know, I'll pitch wherever you want, Skip. You know, Andrew Miller at peak was their best reliever. It's sad that he's been hurt for a couple of years now, and we haven't seen that Andrew Miller for a while. But I, I, I'm guessing that this they might have hit a perfect storm in the Atlanta game on Wednesday night where it was a tight game, and it was obvious. Atlanta's exact, specific, oh, my God, not those guys. Guys were coming up. It was the NCR Day, Albies, Freeman. If somebody got on, um, Arcakis was going to hit. Uh, maybe Cunha's not playing right now, so Acuna's out of the mix. So it was basically everybody you would not want to face if the Braves were coming up in a key spot, were coming up in the eighth inning. And Familia, you know, his numbers are much better than Gizelman's, and he's clearly the, the guy in the Mets bullpen, and the Mets bullpen has been kind of a gasoline alley lately. So um, you have, like, Familia's been great, gizelman has been okay, and then everybody else was like, you know, Lugo's starting to get tired, and like everybody else, you don't even trust them. So I'm suspecting that, you know, Familia likes being the closer he likes having the stature that comes with it it comes with extra pay and, and maybe he they might the idea might be look, you're still our ninth inning guy you're still going to get the saves. you're still going to get the prestige of you know closing the game out getting the handshake being the man because most relievers you know Andrew Miller aside most relievers want that uh, for all the different reasons that that means something so i'm suspecting that it just was a perfect storm with Atlanta the right guy's coming up. Maybe if you played Washington, it was like, oh, here comes Trey Turner, here comes Bryce Harper. We've got to get, you know, familiar in the eighth inning. Maybe that would happen again. But, and then who knows? Maybe Callaway's just going to say, we're not going to manage by the save rule. It seems like Gabe Kapler has decided that, but almost to a. I think Gabe Kapler's is so intent on being a different manager and an unorthodox manager that I think sometimes he just does things that don't make sense. But he's two months into his career as a manager, so maybe it's unfair to jump on him, although I've. Had a lot of private private discussions about him. And I don't know, we'll see where it goes. Um, again, you know, we want people to do different things. End of the day, I think Familia, my guess is that he's still going to get most of the saves. And the great thing about Gazelman, it's so funny. Uh, Jake, Jake DeGrom's CRA is in the mid ones. He's got four wins. And I think they, they had a stat on the Mets broadcast that since DeGrom came into Major League Baseball, he's the pitcher who has the most games where he's vacated in line to have a win and the game has been blown on him. He's had the most blown wins. And this isn't somebody who pitches five innings. I mean, he usually goes you know, relatively deep into a game. So he's just had incredible bad luck with the wins yet, yet Robert Kazelman has five wins and now this save. So, um, you know, even though Kazelman's ERA is in the you know, mid threes, I think his whip is over one three now, like like one three, three or something like that. I mean, those are barely playable ratios, that would not necessarily make him like a Lima plan reliever or somebody like that. But if they're going to use him in high leverage situations, if he's going to pitch in the tie games, if he's going to pitch as a secondary closer on a day, Familia either can't pitch or Familia may be pressed into a, a more important part of the game like we saw last night, then maybe because will get enough leverage use that he becomes worth owning for fantasy just because they're choosing to see him in that role.
0: Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And I, uh, Almost every fantasy player I know who's been at it for any length of time will tell you a story about winning a league because he lucked into 10 or 12 wins from a, from a setup guy. For me, it was Arthur Rhodes back in the day from, with Seattle. I think he got me 10 or 12 wins for, for a dollar and uh, made all the difference in my league. You mentioned leverage, and I think this is interesting. The leverage charts, as we now use them, the matrices that uh, sum up game state, uh, how many outs there are, guys on base, et cetera, and they ha- apply a number to that don't take in the opposing batters. And so the Gesellman save last night would have been a higher leverage situation than Familia's eighth inning going in against the much tougher 2-3-4 part of the order. Gesellman comes in 5-6-7, but not only does he get the save, but he gets a higher leverage appearance. And you might be able to make an argument that it wasn't the higher leverage uh, part of the game. The higher leverage part was the eighth with the with the tougher hitters.
2: Maybe, in uh you know, we need to reevaluate how this leverage stuff is being tabulated it's great that they're quantifying it and I, I think we we care about that type of stuff but if this you found i think a hole in the in the formula where if this situation isn't screaming out that Familia had the higher leverage because game tighter much better hitters then i i think that it shows that there's a gap in the formula and we have to be careful how we you know look at that quantifiably if it's you know this is seems to me that maybe there's a gap here
0: it would be terribly difficult to include i think Uh, there'd be a lot more record keeping but of course nowadays with the uh, databases that are accessible to people who want to do such a thing it may be possible to do such a thing Uh, you replied to a twitter request for unpopular baseball opinions by noting that bryce harper is a little overrated why do you think
2: yeah how many anybody contested me on that he gets hurt a lot plays with his hair on fire which is a good thing and a bad thing i know batting average isn't as important as we thought it was a long time ago. Um, but you know one year he hit two forty three. Three different years he was in the two seventies. This year he's hitting two thirty eight. If I and I am a Red Sox fan, as as Todd Zola is, as um I think Ray Murphy might be a Red Sox fan, or at least he lives in Boston. But so people are going to accuse me of bias here. But if contracts didn't exist, if players all made the same amount of money and the nationals offered bryce harper for bookie betts i would say no immediately betts is a better base runner he's a better defensive player he's proven to be more durable I, you know, harper and trout are always going to be linked because they came up at the same time and i know that everybody realizes that trout is the better player i think it's by a bigger gap than people realize Har- harper's still walk a ton lives on base uh the power is unbelievable and I know counting stats are not a perfect way to evaluate a player. Harper's always going to look better in the percentage stats than he is on the counting stats. One season with 30 home runs, never driven in 100 runs. I don't know. I shouldn't. I mean, you look at Trout. His entire baseball reference page is just a, a bunch of like typos and misprints. Of how good that guy is. I feel like Harper had one unbelievable MVP season, and other than that, he's just been one of the good players in baseball. And he's a spectacle. When Bryce Harper hits one, it goes 530 feet. Yeah, this is how I felt about Gene Carlos Stanton before last year. And then, of course, he has an MVP season and hits a ridiculous amount of home runs and all the Stanton people threw in my face. And I, you know, look, I'll take it. He had a great year. I always thought that Giancarlo Carlos Stanton was overrated because people love it that when he hits the home run, it, you know, he hits it out of the ballpark practically. He hits it in the upper deck. He hits it where it goes out immediately. He hits it in places where nobody else hits it. And Harper's like that too. I think he's a little bit of a spectacle, and I think it's my nature to look at the Mookie Betts types. Now, Betts is having such a monster year that everybody sees how great he is. But even when Betts had a quote-unquote down season last year, it was still pretty good. And I love guys who are good at everything. Uh, Bill James used to talk about Dwight Evans' Hall of Fame case was diminished because he was good at everything. And people would rather you be great at some things because that just draws more attention. Jim Rice made the Hall of Fame because he had a three-year peak that's really high. He hit 46 home runs one year, drove at 139 runs. The skill of Dwight Evans was getting on base, was playing great defense, winning all the school Gloves, scoring a bunch of runs. You know, doing things that maybe aren't as sexy as some of the other stats that we care about. Um, so I'm I'm always going to be I'm always going to be a bets over Harper type of guy. It's easy to say that this year because Betts is having an unbelievable breakthrough season. But if we'd had this discussion almost any other season, I would have argued the same type of logic.
0: On the other side of the coin, you say Brandon Nimmo, the Mets outfielder, is under-owned. Why should more people own Brandon Nimmo? And should they be looking to get Brandon Nimmo if they don't have
2: him? Yeah, the tricky thing is the Mets may have an outfield glut um, when they get this back, although you never know with health. Um, I always think if somebody's good enough to get on the field, that they're, you know, you just trust, you know, what, right? Wouldn't Ron Chandler say that you, you trust the skills and you, you just assume that the playing time will figure itself out or something probably more elegant than I just said. But what thing I like about Nimmo is that he's clearly a leadoff hitter for them. Uh, he's he's right stealing bases in a year where almost nobody is stealing bases. So if you get an odd steal here or there, it, you know, you can bump you up in the standings. And he, he's getting hit by a lot of pitches, which is kind of a double-edged sword. On one hand, you get on base. It's awesome in, in tout because OBP is a stat. but um, just for regular fantasy, the fact that he's on base, it's good because he might steal a base, he might score a run. Um, you know, it cycles the, the lineup, it, it maybe even increases just the odds that he'll come up again in the game. But, um, but then again, getting hit by the pitches, you know, get injured. You throw out your hand, you may, you know, you may be out for two months. But uh, you get a bunch of body armor, too, which I guess one protects him from a hit by pitch, and two, it, it also increases probably the odds of being hit by the pitch because you have all that stuff hanging off you. I've always had a kind of a love-hate relationship with the armor. I want them to stay healthy. It's like the hockey discussion earlier. I, I want these guys to be healthy, but I don't want the body armor to become a strategy. Anyway, he's going to get on base a lot. He's got a little bit of pop. He can run. Uh, he may be a platoon guy, a platoon advantage guy. He may be a lefty who plays against righties, and that's a good and a bad thing because at least he's not exposed to so the lefties and hit as well. But it also may mean you need to do a lot of maintenance in a daily league. You may need to check the lineup every day. Or in a weekly league, you may need to check to make sure the Mets aren't playing a bunch of lefties because it might push Nimmo to the bench. I think they should just start them all the time. I don't know if they will or not. A lot will depend on how healthy Cespedes can be.
0: You agreed with a tweet that Asdrubal Cabrera is having a fine fantasy season, speaking of Mets, and then you said he's on the Scooter Jeanette list. I think I know, but what is the Scooter Jeanette list and who else is on it?
2: Yeah, boring boring. veteran players who are having uh, strong seasons. Uh, Gannett comes to mind as Drupal Cabrera um, comes to mind. Brendan Belt. I mean, you know, people have always kind of thought, okay, he's okay, but he's nothing special. He, he stepped it up. I used to call this list the Raul Abanez All-Stars. which just underappreciated. also with Gannett, a guy who I think people decided, remember Milwaukee cut him out, right? He was kind of a journeyman, kind of a... Super utility, you know. Do you want to play him everyday, guy? Remember last year he hit the four home runs, and, and a lot of people were almost mad at Scooter Jeanette for having that game. Like, you know, you're not good enough to do that. You're not the type player. I, I remember people saying, "Don't rush out to get Scooter Jeanette." What does what does that mean? What if I have time? What if I have a half hour? Can I pick him up then? I mean, does it have to be a hasty move? Do we have to just use these wide landing strips to make our advice? Maybe he prove himself as a player. And I look at some of the guys who came out of nowhere last year, like like Jeanette like Whit Merrifield, like Tommy Pham. And what happens a lot of times, when when a player that we like busts out, then, okay, fine, next year the price is really expensive. But when a player we don't like, or a player we don't trust, or a player who was never a top prospect, or a player who was never expected to do a lot, when those guys, they do it at a late age, when those guys break out, There's almost this idea that I don't want to be the sucker the next year. I'm not being the idiot paying for Whit Merrifield. He came out of nowhere. He had no pedigree at all. He can't be this good. Tommy Pham, he he wasn't their top prospect. He wasn't on this Baseball America list. I mean, how could he be any good? This has to be a fluke. I'm not going to be the one looking stupid taking Tommy Pham. I'm not going to be the guy who can't see that Scooter Jeanette just had an outlier season. The thing is, though, when, when we get to, when the room is smart and they all think this way, that I don't want to be, I'm afraid I'm going to look stupid, the worst thing you can do in fantasy is say, I'm not going to act on something I want to do because I'm afraid I'm going to look stupid if it doesn't work out. You can't think that way.
0: Scott, this has been terrific so far. Can you take a breather and come back a little later on in the show? Sure, I'd love to. Scott Pianowski writes for Yahoo Sports, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up next, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Boogie Wilson still
0: hoping to win it for New York. Three and two, the count. And the pitch by Stanley.
3: at a ground ball. trickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Rounding
4: third night. The Mets will win the ballgame. The Mets win. Baseball
0: HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. The big news in the National League, of course, the return of ace left-hander Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers coming back from the DL where he was uh, waiting with a biceps injury. How did he look in his first game back on Thursday against the Phillies?
3: Well, some good and some not so good. Uh, The good is he was doing all right in his return start. Five innings, one run on four hits with five strikeouts and a walk. He threw 62 pitches with 42 strikes. And I saw that the replay said that that one run probably shouldn't have scored as the runner failed to touch on plate.
0: And I'm going to guess that 62 pitches is the bad.
3: That's right. You're, you'd be guessing exactly right. He left the game with some tightness or soreness in his back, and given his history, that's uh, that's a really bad sign. Uh, Kershaw has missed significant time the last few seasons with back problems. A muscle strain in his back in 2014, a 60-day DL strain with a herniated disc in 2016, a DL strain with a minor uh, lower back strain in 2017, uh, and put on the DL this season with left biceps tendinitis. So for right now, it's not clear how bad this uh, latest uh, strain is, but his next scheduled start is against Pittsburgh next Wednesday, and that's kind of uncertain right now.
0: Yeah, he didn't sound very happy. I heard, happened to hear a little bit of a of an interview with Clayton Kershaw after the game, and he did sound a little bit uh, disappointed in the way things had turned out. He tried to sound optimistic, but he didn't, you know, sound his vocal tone was not optimistic. Shall we say? Uh, ESPN is reporting that Miami manager Don Mattingly said Thursday that right-handed reliever Brad Ziegler is out as the team's closer after he blew a save Wednesday in a loss to San Diego. What's the bullpen situation look like now in Miami?
3: Not much of a surprise here with that announcement. The loss dropped Ziegler to 0-5 with a 7.83 ERA. Uh, maybe the only surprise is that th- that blown save on Wednesday was his first of the season. But Mattingly said that Kyle Barraclough will probably serve as a closer now. Uh, again, don't get too excited. Barraclough is not the second incarnation of Mariano Rivera. Uh, he's 0-2 with one save, two blown saves. Uh, has a nice 1.48 ERA in 25 appearances. A, uh, a solid 48% ground ball rate. But uh, th- that's what we see on the surface. Below the surface, XCRA is almost at four, uh, has an unsustainable 14% hit rate, uh, walks way too many hitters. Control is at uh, five and a half walks per nine innings. Uh, so that's going to make him kind of a shaky uh, holder of that relief role.
0: I saw the 14% hit rate, and that really jumped out at me because we know that uh, ground ball pitchers tend to give up more hits just because they roll through the infield and find their way in there. Uh, Fly ball pitchers have lower hit rates and higher uh, extra base hit rates. But uh, Baracloss seems to be living on borrowed time here, Nick.
3: Yeah, I think very definitely uh, uh, living on borrowed time at the moment. So uh, it's an implosion waiting to happen.
0: And Miami's not exactly overloaded with uh, alternatives either. Uh, Drew Steckenrider would be the next guy in line. We already have him down for five or ten percent of the save opportunities. So, uh, with Kyle Barraclough being such a shaky candidate, I think maybe the play here would be to uh, gamble a dollar or two in your fab on Drew Steckenrider, expecting Barraclough to be the next guy down the drain.
3: Uh, it might indeed be be, be worth doing. Steckenrider has pitched pretty well, except he's had a couple of big blowups and. Aside from those blowups, Deccan Rider has been fairly solid.
0: Striking out 12 per inning, walking about four, which is, uh, four is a little high as well. Expected ERA of around 330, and his actual ERA is 501, so there's room for improvement there. Uh, I think second rider's the play. I could be wrong. Uh, Not too many save opportunities in Miami, either way, nor in Cincinnati, where the Reds activated closer Razal Iglesias from the 10-day DL. He had a biceps issue uh, as well. Tom Kephart covers the Reds for playing time today at Baseball HQ. Uh, What are the changes in the Reds' bullpen with the return of Razel Iglesias.
3: Iglesias went right back to the closer role, recorded a four-out save the night after his recall. Um, Reliever Jared Hughes had three saves while Iglesias was out, and he returns to a setup role. Hughes is uh, pitching very well, displaying some career best skills. 66% first strike rate, 37% swinging strike rate, uh, uh, sorry, 13% swinging strike rate, and part of a career-high 98 BPV. Uh, One kind of cautionary note on Hughes' He has a highly favorable hit rate and strand rate, and that put a lid on the ERA. And don't be surprised if those numbers normalize and his ERA goes up from its current 1.16 to something more closer to his 3.33 X ERA.
0: While Iglesias was out, we also saw southpaw Amir Garrett in a primary setup role. What happens now that Iglesias is back to Amir Garrett?
3: As I said, Hughes will go back to that main setup role, but Amir Garrett seems to have surpassed Wadi Peralta as Cincinnati's primary left-handed setup reliever. Um, he has excellent swing and miss stuff, as we can see, with a 14% swinging strike rate, but control is a different story. Walk rate is 3.1 per nine innings, a 55% first pitch strike percentage, and that could be a problem. Uh, that said, our projection includes a small bump in his save projection, reflecting the potential for the Reds to give Iglesias a little more time off between appearances uh, and to use late inning matchups a little more aggressively than they have so far.
0: In Milwaukee, shortstop Orlando Arcia was sent to AAA a while back after opening the season with a BA under 200 and an OPS barely over 500. Now he's been recalled because shortstop Tyler Saladino is on the 10-day DL with an ankle sprain. Uh, Tom Kephart again on the coverage. What should we make of this changing of the the guard at the shortstop spot in Milwaukee?
3: Saladino is sidelined less than a week after being installed as Milwaukee's uh, starting shortstop and Arcia figures to play regularly while Saladino recuperates. Arcia needs to get back to his 2017 form at the plate if he wants to keep a starting role after Saladino returns.
0: But how likely is it that Arcia can do that?
3: Uh, He makes decent contact, around 80%, but his walk rate is barely acceptable, only 7% right now for his his career and down to 5% this year. That's the first problem. Second problem is he gets a ton of ground balls. Uh, above 50% each of his three years in the majors, and 59% this year. Uh, And his line drive rate is a playable 20% last year, has dropped down to 13% this year. Arcea needs to take some of those grounders and convert them into line drives if he wants to turn the season around.
0: And I wouldn't place a lot of money on that. What's the prognosis on Saladino, meanwhile?
3: Well, there's no official timetable for Saladino to get back to action. He had been sporting an OPS over 900 and had three home runs and 45 at-bats this season, but that looks like it's something really lucky rather than a true uh, indication of his of his skill. His hard contact index is a whopping 153 uh, after 61, 81, 67 the last three years, and that hard contact gain comes with a decline in contact. His projected OPS is quite a ways under 600, which seems more in line with his track record in the big leagues than the current OPS he's
0: running. Sheesh. uh well, not many options at shortstop for a team with playoff aspirations, uh, although maybe there are some other possibilities here. Well, they could
3: perhaps play utility man Hernan Perez at shortstop. Uh, we had him down for 10% of the playing time anyway. Uh, he currently has a 644 OPS, so uh, not a gigantic uh, gain there either. Or they could put Perez at second and shift uh, Jonathan Villar from there to shortstop. Uh, Villar is having a really nice season after last year's flop. So that's probably the good news in the middle infield in Milwaukee.
0: Or, and I hate to throw a rank speculation around, they could trade for Manny Machado and win the World Series. There you go. In St. Louis, starting pitcher Alex Reyes, one of the top prospects in all of baseball, was on the DL, returned from the DL, pitched well, and then, like uh, Clayton Kershaw, got injured again. He's back on the DL with a lat strain. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the Cardinals for playing time today. What's the latest on Alex Reyes?
3: Well, Phil reports that Reyes didn't want to be back on the DL, but the team overruled him. And at this point, it's not clear how serious the injury is or how long he'll be out. Uh, we've made a significant reduction in his projected innings, and more reductions could be coming.
0: The Cardinals made a bunch of other moves at the same time as the Reyes going on the DL, including a demotion for previous flavor of the week Tyler O'Neill, who looked pretty good for a little while anyway. What's going on with the St. Louis roster shuffle?
3: Oh, shuffle indeed. Uh, most of the moves were shuffling players who have been shuttling back and forth between Memphis and St. Louis anyway. Uh, Tyler O'Neill had a very hot start, and then it cooled off. And the Cards likely prefer to have him playing every day in Memphis rather than uh, riding the bench in the majors. His roster spot gets taken by right-handed hitter Luke Voigt, who bashes lefties and could see some platoon action. Also, the Cardinals called up outfielder Dylan Cousins, a more highly rated prospect, whose star is tarnished a little in his first couple of years in the minors with too many strikeouts to ignore despite impressive power.
0: And meanwhile, Nick, who gets Reyes' innings?
3: Well, the most interesting name there is call-up Austin Gomber. Gomber's been doing well as a starter in Memphis and uh, pitching really quite well. A 3.60 ERA with 63 strikeouts, only 17 walks in 55 innings. And he could be a candidate for some starts with the Cardinals at some point this season.
0: And finally, Nick, in the Batters Buyers Guide, our fine columnist Stephen Nickrand at Baseball HQ looked at some young batters who might be targets, and one of the names he cited was the Mets' Brandon Nimmo. I like Nimmo, too. What's Stephen seeing here with Brandon Nimmo?
3: Yeah, let me just mention before I, before I talk about that, you know, Stephen's column came out on, I think, Monday or Tuesday, early in the week, and at the end of this week, I've been seeing lots of folks talking about Brandon Nimmo, so recommend reading Stephen uh, when he first comes out early in the week and getting on Baseball HQ and getting a head start on some of these guys. Uh, Brandon Nimmo is pushing for a full-time role. He's been a beneficiary of a lot of the injuries in the Mets lineup and at this point has a 953 OPS in semi-regular work so far in the month of May. A bunch of walks, 20% walk rate, 0.81i, uh, underlying power of 161 XPX, uh, 146 speed skills this month, multi-category potential from Brandon Nimmo. He's a young bat worthy of speculating on at this point.
0: And Nick, I'm curious what you think. Obviously, the Mets are suffering from a lot of injuries, but at the same time, they are going to start seeing some of their injured outfielders and other injured players coming back to the lineup. How likely is it that the Mets think that they're well enough along in the playoff chase? And right now, I wouldn't put a lot of money on their, on their potential in that regard. But if they think they're going to be a playoff contender, does that bode well or ill for Brandon Nimmo?
3: I, but the way he's playing right now, it bodes well for him. I think. I mean, if, if a guy is as hot as Brandon Nimmo has been, uh, they certainly may leave him in the lineup. But you're, you're you're right. It's going to be interesting to see over the next month what happens with the Mets and whether at the trade deadline they are buyers or sellers.
0: Yeah, and then they have you know they have uh, um, Cespedes coming back, and uh, there's some big payroll issues. You know, you want a guy who's making millions of dollars probably gets a little bit longer look than a guy like Nimmo who's making the the league minimum.
3: Absolutely, I mean those issues always come into play, and I, you know, as a as a fantasy player, I sometimes I sit back and say, t- forget about the payroll, play the guy who's hot, you know. But that doesn't always happen with the uh, with the manager because uh, they're paying somebody a lot of money and they want to get their money's worth out of them, even if it's uh, not as uh, spectacular as someone else.
0: Indeed, uh, truer words were never spoken. Nick, thanks a lot for helping us out with the National League news. We'll catch up with you again in two weeks' time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at baseballhq.com and is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis. It's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
5: Hi, PD. Good to be back as always.
0: And it's good to have you. A uh, nice-looking uh, weekend of baseball coming up. Uh, the struggling Rangers finally getting some good news. Adrian Beltre, their Hall of Fame-bound third baseman, returns following his latest DL stint. But he's spending more and more time on the DL these days, as Rod Truesdell noted, in Playing Time Today. And you cover Texas in the American League West for Playing Time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com. How valuable is Adrian Beltre? How does his return affect their lineup? And how likely is he to stay healthy?
5: You know, in a year where batting averages are down, Beltre is just amazing. He got two hits his first night batting. He's kind of par for the course. He's still a hit machine. Problem he has is obviously these these lower leg injuries, the calf and hamstring, have just been putting him on the DL more often than not. Uh, the other problem he has is his power is diminished, but uh, he can still hit. He's hitting a ton of line drives. Uh, the problem is, you're gonna if if you if you own him, you you should always have a a third baseman in ready reserve because you never know when he's going to be on the DL again.
0: I wonder if the diminishing power and the hamstring and calf injuries are related. We know power hitters derive a lot of their thump from being able to generate torque with their lower half, and uh, with these injuries piling up, maybe we should have expected that Adrian Beltray would not be the power hitter we've come to expect.
5: Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, obviously, is one of those guys whose body is betraying him before his skills do, and I think it's definitely having an impact on what he does on the field.
0: Ordinarily so, this uh, Kiner-Falefa would be a fantasy afterthought, but I guess maybe we have to keep him in the back of our minds, at least.
5: I own him in, in one of my leagues, and on in most years, uh, 250 hitter with no power, uh, he, would be, uh, he would be fungible, but... Uh, in a league where batting averages are, what, uh, down below 250 and 84% contact out with a little speed? Maybe not. Maybe he's rosterable in most formats.
0: So we have Adrian Beltre back. Shortstop Elvis Andrews is coming back uh, shortly. You noted in your playing time tomorrow piece that with a full contingent of players coming back, the Rangers are going to be looking at some tough roster choices in the next couple of weeks.
5: Yeah, the guy really focused on is Rugnet Odor, And if you're an O'Dor owner, you know what he did last year. His batting average was uh was down to I think uh something it in the it was in the low two hundreds. It was uh two oh four last year. He hit thirty home runs, which was really the only reason to keep him in the lineup. This year he has one home runs in his first hundred plus at bats. He's hitting more ground balls, and his batting average is still down in the low two hundreds. He signed a big contract a few years ago, a big extension, but he still has options left. I'm wondering whether Texas in a down year doesn't send him back to AAA for, for some sort of uh, remedial help, because uh, he's just not worth having around right now.
0: Yeah, when I look at him, I, I thought the same thing, and I'm frankly a little bit Curious why they haven't done anything so far. I mean, they've had their infield injury problems, which has probably held their hand a little bit as far as making any kind of moves. But with these uh, infielders returning, they may have some options uh, as we speak, I think Odor's barely over 200. You mentioned that his OPS as well, under 600. I mean, that's not even replacement level play at that point. And uh, all of the skills measures, except for hard contact index, look pretty shaky as well. He's, he is hitting the ball hard when he hits it, but his uh, contact rate is 70%. He's striking out 30% of the time. That's not good either.
5: Yeah, and he's been modestly outperformed by Jerickson Profar, who who may not be what uh, his owners envisioned uh, two, three years ago. But here's a guy whose metrics are actually pretty good right now. His uh, his expected batting average is is a lot higher than his uh, his current batting average, which is around two hundred forty. Uh, 80-plus percent contact, 9% uh, walk rate. I'll tell you what, if I was in the Texas front office, I'd be trying to see what Jurickson Propar can do once uh, Elvis Andrus comes back. I'll let him stay at second base and uh, and send uh, Odor back for some reinstruction.
0: In Oakland, uh, slugger Chris Davis has finally returned from the DL. You and uh, Rod Truesdell covered this in your respective playing time articles, him in playing time today, you in playing time tomorrow. What does Chris Davis's return do for the A's other than add some thump?
5: The immediate move here was to send bullpen shelter Carlos Ramirez back to AAA after he'd been used the night before uh, Davis's activation. But as Rod notes in his piece, Franklin Barreto is likely to become the the eventual roster cut here. Barreto is probably going to stay in Oakland at least until Marcus Simeon returns from uh, a three-day paternity leave. They're going to need his infield help at least off the bench. Um, so not much real change in Oakland, uh, in that Davis slides back into his regular DH spot, uh, Mark Canha gets a few less at bats and he returns to a left field platoon with Matt Joyce.
0: Aren't you disappointed by Franklin Barreto so far? I mean, he's had only six at bats, but he's yet to see a hit. He's yet to drive in a run. He hasn't scored a run. I don't even know if he's drawn a walk. I guess a couple of them, but. Gosh, uh, Franklin Barreto a couple of years ago was a fairly top prospect. And I can remember uh, in leagues that I've played in that if you were in a keeper league, Franklin Barreto would be a guy you're targeting. Are you still targeting Franklin Barreto at all?
5: Um. Yeah, but I'm also targeting patience. I think the problem with players like Barreto, he he was rushed up uh, through the through the high minors by Oakland before he was ready. He's still only 22, and you're right. He has contact problems. Uh, he's not going to hit for batting average in the, in the majors right now. Um, he's walking a little more in Triple A. I do see some signs. He's just. I, I just don't see him ready this year, and uh, you know how these things go. Sometimes it takes a couple of years for these guys. So if you're if you're in a start over league, uh, Franklin Barreto's not a guy I'd be looking at, at right now.
0: Might be an even more interesting playing time situation in Oakland involving Frankie Montas, who was called up last week in May, uh, supposed to make a spot start but he looked pretty good, albeit against an Arizona team that was pretty suspect offensively, and that earned him another shot against another weak hitting team in Kansas City, and you've covered Montas for playing time tomorrow recently. How do you see Frankie Montas as a potential guy who might hang around?
5: You know, it's really interesting. I haven't been a big Montas fan because I've watched him in a lot of his major league performances before this, but I watched him against Arizona. He looked like a different pitcher. He he wasn't walking nearly as many. His walk rate in the, in the majors was almost six. And uh, he was locating his pitches better uh, up in the zone. He pitches up in the zone, which can be a problem if you don't have the location, uh, particularly when you're throwing a, a curveball. But he's got such lively stuff, and his fastball still runs around 97, 98. Um, he really dominated uh, that Arizona team. Uh, he's, he's the kind of guy, his stuff gives him um, – a, a little bit of leeway here if he can, if he can locate it correctly. He's still gonna give up the home runs. Um, but I think this is a guy against weak hitting clubs like Arizona and, uh, and, uh, Kansas City. If he can keep the walks off the board, he's got a real shot. You can stream him against those teams, particularly if he's pitching in Oakland. And and, well, tonight he's pitching in Kansas City. I would stream him that game. I I noticed where our daily matchup space uh, rated him a judgment call. That's pretty unusual for a rookie pitcher making his second start of the season, uh, and particularly one with the track record in the majors of Montas.
0: Yeah, in the, in the minor leagues this year, though, he hasn't been pitching particularly well. I, I looked at his record at 134 whip. I think his ERA is around four or even a little higher than four. Uh, it would be a fairly weird thing for a pitcher with a four ERA and a 140 whip in the minor leagues to come up to the majors and then, and be really impressive. Is this a case where he's pitching up to the, pitching up to the opposition rather than down or are Kansas City and Arizona such weak teams that they don't look good compared to AAA clubs? I don't get Frankie Montas's performance here.
5: Well, if you look at that 4.39 ERA again, it's in the Pacific Coast League, which is a prehistorically historically heavy offensive league. And uh, the one thing that that still bugs me a little bit about Montas is he's he's got the good stuff, but he's still not striking out a lot of hitters, as you've noted. He uh, he only has 33 strikeouts in 41 innings at the uh, at the AAA level, so he still hasn't been able to work his secondaries uh, and 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 fastball combination into a lot of swing and miss. Uh, but uh i would take that era uh in uh, at nashville in the pcl with a grain of salt 439 is really not that bad uh for uh for that particular league uh, and again yeah i'm looking at him in in certain situations I, there's still some risk here um but if you if if you watch him pitch and you look at that stuff um I, I think longer term he has some growth ahead of him the real key is avoiding the home runs and the walks in the short term
0: one other thing that worries me about him is that Oakland is his fourth organization in a career that started in 2010. Mind you, he was only 17 at the time, but Boston has looked like they've given up on him, uh, the White Sox and the Dodgers as well. Uh, that's not always a good sign. Uh, in Cleveland, man, they're scoring runs like it's going out of style, but their pitching is really starting to become a problem. They called up uh, their hot starting pitching prospect, Shane Bieber, and he made his debut this past week. Well, not such great results. Is Shane Bieber going to stick around for another shot? And meanwhile, what else is going on in Cleveland with their pitching?
5: Well, purportedly, this was one of those starts. It was supposed to be one and done uh, in, in this case to give the rotation some rest and and probably to, to get an audition look at Bieber. And if you lo- look at the results, it may be one and done for now. He didn't pitch that badly. He gave up a couple of home runs in six innings. Uh, he gave up a, a bunch of runs late. I think it was four runs in six innings. But if you look at his strikeouts to walk, six, six strikeouts to one, this is, this is how he comes advertised. He's a command over stuff pitcher. Um, I'm looking at his stuff right now in the minors, pretty impressive, or well, I should say his stats in the minors, uh, impressive 61 to three strikeout to walk ratio over 65 innings between, uh, double A AA and triple A. So he definitely knows. Where to throw the ball? Um, but again, being a command over stuff pitcher, uh, the question is, will this play at the MLB level? So, um, um, his first start was, had some good, had some bad. Uh, I think that final number five spot is going to be between him and Adam Plutko, who was sent down to make room for him. They may be alternating and auditioning for this particular spot uh, all year long with, uh, along with the walking shoulder problem that we call Danny Salazar now.
0: In Chicago, the White Sox third baseman Matt Davidson has landed on the DL. He's got some back spasms. Uh, How does this uh, shape up in Chicago for roster issues? And what about Eloy Jimenez possibly making his debut?
5: I play in mostly keeper leagues, and I don't own any Davidson shares, so I haven't looked too closely at his numbers this year. But this one's a surprisingly big loss for fantasy owners. Davidson's one of the the more improved hitters, surprisingly improved hitters, that I've come across. The power's there. We all know about that. It was there last year. And the contact uh, remains deficient. But he's really improved his pitch selection this year. He's gone from a 4% walk rate to a 16% walk rate so far. And his hard contact has gone along with it. Both his batting average and his expected batting average has improved. So Davidson's turning into a fantasy-relevant guy regardless of, of format right now.
0: On Fangraphs.com, there's a writer, Travis Sochick. You may have heard of him. He wrote an article recently about Matt Davidson saying Matt Davidson is the most improved hitter in the big leagues. And he puts it down primarily to a real willingness to look at his own swing and uh, study it on video and so forth. And he's, uh, and I'm quoting Davidson in the Fangraph story. I looked at all my at-bats last year, and I realized there are so many pitches I had no business swinging at. I don't mind getting beat in the zone. I'll swing and miss at a pitch in the zone. But if a ball's out of the zone, I don't want to swing at that. And he not only looked at it and analyzed it, he sounds like he's actually doing something about it.
5: Well, there you go, huh? And if you look at the numbers, and obviously we've got to look at more than the numbers. I try to watch as much of this stuff as I can. The numbers actually support uh, what you're saying and what uh, Travis is saying there. Uh, he's he's a real interesting guy.
0: What happens with the rest of the roster, meanwhile, and what about Eloy Jimenez?
5: Davidson has been playing. Uh, DH in Chicago. Uh, they've called up uh, Matt Skoll. They've used him a couple of times at DH. Uh, until they call up Aloy, there's there's really not a lot to get excited about. Obviously, anything can happen in a few months with some of these names like Skoll. He has a home run in his first nine at bats. So, so far, so good. But uh, Chicago's rebuilding, and there's obviously no sense in them rushing Aloy. Uh, could be sometime super two in June. But more likely I think they're gonna make Eloy Force a call up. Uh, my guess is that if he does get a two eight twenty eighteen call, it's gonna be after the July thirty one deadline. And this is a shame because <laughs> I, I this is a guy who along with Vlad Guerrero, he's one of two minor league uh hitters I think could hold their own versus major league pitching right now. They at least should be uh um promoting him pretty soon to triple A. I don't know if you've looked at his double A numbers, but uh, 331 batting average, uh, 623 slugging. This is a guy who who both has hit skills and power skills. I think he's going to be just fine wherever they put
0: him. I have to confess, Jock, I'm not real clear on the the uh, timing of the situation after they get past that early May date that allows them an extra control year. Do the White Sox or does any major league team benefit by simply leaving a player in the minor leagues all year? Uh, despite the, uh, perhaps the negative effects it might have, uh, letting him be a man among boys down there, him or Vlad Guerrero, is there any reason financially for the teams to not call them up?
5: I think it's all about service time. I mean, you don't know when a player gets up, uh, whether he's going to bounce up and down over the next year or two. Um, for me, I think that, I think they realize when they call a Alo- Aloy Jimenez up, he's probably going to be up to stay. At least that's my take on it. So I agree with you. I, I, I personally think that after the Super 2 date, you know, call him up now. He's not going to help him win a pennant this year, obviously. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not in a major league front office, so maybe there's more to it than, uh, than what I've just said.
0: And finally, real quick, uh, Jock, there's a, a crowded situation in the outfield in Seattle, but it's all kind of mediocre. Uh, you cover the AL West for playing time tomorrow, as I mentioned. Uh, what do you see in the outfield in Seattle?
5: Yeah, well, um, the Mariners obviously picked up Denard Spann in that uh, that trade they made with Tampa Bay, with Alex Colomay involved uh, uh, last week, too. Um, this adds another mediocre outfielder to their collection. Um, Span is, I, I shouldn't say Span is, comp- I, I shouldn't compare Span to, uh, for example, Ben Gamble. Uh, Span has more of a major league track record, but he's 34, 35. He still hits righties pretty well. Um, he doesn't give you a lot of power. Um, he probably has better plate skills than Gamel, but these guys are almost interchangeable. Uh, Span, Gamel, even uh, Guillermo Heredia, who plays better defense in both of them, he can play center field, and who's been pretty hot this year against righties. We talked about him a little while ago. The problem for fantasy owners uh, um, right now is that these guys are all fairly interchangeable depending on who's hot. You also have Jason Wirth, uh, down in the minors, if Jason Wirth ever, um, ever, ever gets going, uh, he, he could also make this more crowded. And I guess my take here is there's not a lot of upside from any of these names to really spend a lot of time on it. And if somebody goes into a slump for a couple of weeks, he's probably going to be on the bench. So not a great fantasy situation in, uh, in Seattle.
0: Okay, Jock, thanks very much for bringing us up to date on the American League. We'll talk to you again in two weeks' time. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Pitcher Matchups are all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, it's time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence that BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Facts and Flukes performance analysis, Brian Rudd assesses the performances of John Lester, Colton Wong, and three other players. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Brandon Cruz looks at the American League Central including the pending return of Carlos Rodon to the Chicago White Sox rotation, the dumpster fire that is the Cleveland bullpen, the delay in Irvin Santana's return to Minnesota, and more. And in the Big Hurt, injury analyst Matt Cedarholm gets the lowdown on injuries to Noah Syndergaard, Reese Hoskins, Adam Odovino, and other hurt players. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. Just a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and our pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Twins shortstop prospect Royce Lewis is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon.
6: The Minnesota Twins' Royce Lewis is showing why he was the top pick in the 2017 draft. The 18-year-old Lewis can do it all on the ball field. He has an advanced approach at the plate, elite bat speed, and top-of-the-scale speed on the bases. Lewis has plus range with good hands and a solid arm, though at 6'2 and 190 pounds, he could grow out of the position down the road. Lewis reached low A Cedar Rapids in his pro debut after just 133 at-bats in rookie ball and is making his full-season debut in 2018. On the year, Lewis is hitting .312 with a .359 on-base percentage and a .422 slugging percentage with 8 doubles, 3 home runs, and 15 stolen bases in 16 attempts. Lewis has below average power right now, but has the size and bat speed to develop average to above power at maturity, and it would not be surprising to see him bump to high A in the next several weeks. Middle infielders with plus speed and the potential for above average power don't grow on trees, and Royce Lewis is a must-own in all long-term keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: An important way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Los Angeles right-hander Dennis Santana, St. Louis right-hander Alex Reyes, and Atlanta outfield prospect Dustin Peterson. And in the eyes have it, HQ scout Chris Blessing looks at the top 25 best fantasy players in the coming amateur draft and focuses on three prospects from Georgia, including right-handed pitcher Kumar Rocker. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in many of our leagues, and BaseballHQ.com has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Miami starting pitcher Sandy Alcantara. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky.
4: Would it surprise you to hear that 22-year-old Miami Marlins right-handed starting pitching prospect, Sandy Alcantara, has finally hit triple digits in AAA? If you've been tracking his 102-mile-per-hour plus-plus fastball, as opponents have in the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League, you probably wouldn't be surprised at all to hear that Sandy Alcantara just hit triple digits in AAA, during his last start on Tuesday, May 29th, against the Iowa Cubs at Des Moines. However, in this case, we're not talking about miles per hour, but rather, pitches. You see, Sandy Alcantara averaged 87 pitches per start through five starts in April. Then his average climbed to 95 pitches per start in May, culminating in 101 pitches versus the Iowa Cubs on May 29th, as previously mentioned. Hmm... 80s in April, then 90s in May, 101 pitches as last start. Interesting trend, huh? Of course, there's nothing to indicate the call-up to the big leagues is imminent. That's why Sandy Alcantara, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But consider this. Sandy Alcantara is already on the Miami Marlins' 40-man roster. It wouldn't take much to bring him up once the Super 2 deadline passes. Maybe the Miami Marlins are thinking the same thing. In addition, Sandy Elcantra, who was one of the four players acquired from St. Louis in the Barcelo Zuna trade last December, could generate some huge headlines if he's promoted next week when the Marlins face the Cardinals on June 5th through June 7th. Of course, we're just speculating about a possible call-up next week versus his old team, the St. Louis Cardinals, and the headlines it would produce. But seriously, Sandy Alcantara is beginning to press the issue in Miami. With a 3.43 ERA through 10 starts at AAA New Orleans, Sandy Alcantara has significantly improved his ground ball rate from 2017, suggesting that he's working on perfecting his non-fastball offerings. In fact, Sandy Alcantara has only allowed three home runs as 10 starts, supporting the notion that he is perfecting his secondary offerings and not relying solely on his fastball. In other words, a lot of trends are suggesting that Sandy Alcantara may soon be ripe for promotion. Not to mention that, although Shohei Otani reportedly threw a 101-mile-per-hour fastball in the fifth inning against the Tigers on Wednesday, May 30th, Reportedly the fastest pitch thrown by a starter in 2018, Sandy Elcantra does have a 102-mile-per-hour fastball in his arsenal. So if you missed out on Shohei Otani, don't miss out on Sandy Alcantara, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. At BaseballHQ.com, we rate pitcher matchups on a scale centered on zero. Starts rated higher than plus 0.5 are called strong starts. Starts rated minus 0.5 or worse are rated weak starts. And those in between, well, those are your judgment calls. Here with a look at Cubs left-hander Mike Montgomery in New York to face the Mets and Jacob deGrom and other weekend matchups, is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick.
1: Our marquee matchup for this weekend is the only one in which both starting pitchers have matchup ratings in the strong start range of 0.5 or above. It's on Saturday in the New York Mets pitcher-friendly home park of Citi Field. The visiting Chicago Cubs send their rotation replacement for Hugh Darvish to the hill. After a PQS dominant 4 against the Pirates in Pittsburgh for his first start of 2018, Cubs wannabe starter Mike Montgomery is on the road again. His matchup rating is 071. Montgomery will face the Mets Jake DeGrom, who is set to make his 12th start overall and his 6th start at home. DeGrom has a matchup rating of 134. All 5 of DeGrom's home starts this season have been PQS dominant. In six of his past eight outings, DeGrom has gone seven innings or more. Over 47 and two-thirds innings pitched in those eight starts since April 16, DeGrom has allowed only five earned runs for an ERA of 0.94. DeGrom has had a little bit of luck with his strand rate of 87%, eclipsing his historical strand rates of 76 to 79%, but he's still showing a career best expected ERA of 277 and a career best base performance value of 162. DeGrom's Mayberry scores are perfect fives for ERA, strikeout rate, and innings pitched, and straight A's for health, experience, and consistency. Our 2018 baseball forecaster gave DeGrom an upside of Cy Young talk, and he's certainly been living up to that upside thus far this season. Unlike DeGrom's great matchup rating, which has the foundation of consistent ace-level performance, Montgomery's matchup rating is more a function of the Mets' offensive futility than his track record as a starter. In 2017, the Northside Southpaw started 14 games for Chicago. Montgomery had only one PQS dom, nine PQS decents, including a PQS 2 against the Mets, and four PQS disasters. Over his small sample size of 31 innings pitched so far in 2018, Montgomery has a career-best ground ball rate of 62% and a career-best control rate of 2.9 walks per inning. Those should help him Saturday, but even more helpful might be the Mets' National League ranking of 12th in total runs scored, 11th in home OPS, and 14th in home power index. Looking at our maximum and minimum matchup ratings, we see that Jake DeGrom's 134 is actually only the 8th best matchup rating this weekend. Arizona Diamondbacks righty Zach Grenke leads the way with the 1 matchup rating above 2. 214 for his humidor friendly home start versus the Miami Marlins' surprising left hander Caleb Smith on Saturday. The Astros' Justin Verlander is next with a matchup rating of 162 for his Saturday start at home in Houston against Boston's David Price. Angels' lefty Tyler Skaggs also has a matchup rating of 162 for his home start on Sunday, and Skaggs enjoys the second best matchup rating differential of the weekend at 297. He faces Rangers right-hander Doug Pfister, who has a matchup rating of minus 135. And speaking of negative matchup ratings, our minimum matchup rating this weekend is a minus 182. That disappointing distinction belongs to Chicago White Sox 26-year-old right-hander Dylan Covey, who has a Sunday start in his hitter-friendly home of Guaranteed Rate Park. The beneficiary of our marquee mismatch with a matchup rating differential of 299 is 28-year-old left-hander Brent Souter, who has a matchup rating of 117 for the visiting brew crew. To recap our recommendations for this weekend, look for effective starts in New York from marquee matchup men Jake DeGrom of the Mets and Mike Montgomery of the Cubs. Also expect excellence from maximum matchup men Justin Verlander of the Astros and Tyler Skaggs of the Angels. On the other end of the spectrum, load your lineups with Angels and Brewers on Sunday as they'll be facing our minimum matchup men, Doug Pfister and Dylan Covey. Remember our recommendation for post-Memorial Day attention to your teams. Concentrate on improving your ratio categories. That's an invitation for you to use the new ERA and WIP component ratings shown in our exclusive matchup rating system. Check our site to get updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fiskwick of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst and has our weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio during the season every week. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports coming up on Baseball HQ Radio.
2: One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high
4: drive into deep left center field, Buckner goes back to the fence, it is
1: gone!
2: for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol.
0: And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate, Not only by every
2: member
5: of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck,
4: kissed him for all she was worth. Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back.
2: Good to be back, Patrick.
0: Your main uh, area where people can read you is at Yahoo Sports in the Roto Arcade column. And in a recent edition, you argued that mixed league owners should be looking at Miami starter Caleb Smith. What is it about Caleb Smith that caught your eye?
2: I like that... um He obviously strikes people out, which is not that hard to find in 2018, but that's a nice place to start. Plus pitches. As fastball, he kind of works off, but he's got two other pitches that he's getting plus values out of, and that's enabling him to get right-handers out. He's somebody who had a more traditional set of platoon splits in the minors. You know, mows down the lefties, has trouble with the righties this year. It's been the other way around, where the righties are, are not hitting him, and the lefties have been a little bit better than expected. So... What we, 11 starts into the season, I mean, it, it's kind of a tricky area where you you, you got to be careful because it's not a full season, but 11 starts, it's not like you made two starts or three starts. I mean, we, we've got enough, you know, we're almost to June now. I think a lot of people, or it will be June by the time this comes out, I think a lot of people look at Memorial Day as a great time to put stock in, where you are for fantasy, where a baseball team is, and I feel the same way about players that, okay, okay, somebody on May 15th, I'm sorry, April 15th has big stats, or May 1st has big stats, you know, it's still short sample. At what point does a good start become a good season? At what point does a bad start become a bad season? I think Caleb Smith, 11 starts in. I know the team stinks, and that's a problem. Uh, and I know that some people have said, well, you know, you, you really want to start Caleb Smith every start. And I would sign off on, okay, Colorado, no way, you know, Red Sox, Yankees, you know, they're going to play that division, I'd probably steer him away from those. But I think I'd start him 80 to 90% of the time. He's certainly not like a top three, top four fantasy starter, but I think he might be good enough that you actually use him the balance of the season. It's like one of those five or six guys.
0: Your arcade column about outfielders acknowledges your own past criticism of Chicago's Kyle Schwarber, but goes on to say you think he's grown into a nice player. What's the growth uh, looked like?
2: Yeah, I'm taking the loss on Schwarber. In fact, I I mentioned earlier your spot with Justin Mason last week, which was excellent. I actually talked to Justin a little bit about Schwarber, um, who I I know he's not a big fan of, and I said that you know I used to be the biggest uh, anti-Schwarber guy going because I thought, okay, he can't hit lefties, he can't play defense, and he's on a team that knows these things and is going to be proactive about getting him out of games. And and this year, Schwarber came to camp, lost a ton of weight, and I know people a lot of times jump on that, like, almost like it's a negative. They go, oh, best shape of his life, and they snicker. Well, being in shape's a pretty good thing, actually, especially if you're an athlete, especially if you're an overweight athlete like Kyle Schwarber or Matt Adams used to be. I think trimming weight, and you're a nationally player, too, because you need a way to get on the field. So what's happened? Schwarber's lost weight, and he's a lot better in the field now. I mean, I, I know the defensive metrics can be hard to trust, and some people will say that two, two months of defensive metrics don't matter. His defensive metrics are actually really good right now, but I'm, I'm not a huge defensive metrics guy either. I'm just encouraged by the fact that he's not buried at the bottom of that page like he normally would be. And I've actually seen him with my eyes. I know your eyes can lie to you, but I've seen him make a couple of nimble plays. He looked really bad in the opening game uh, against the Marlins, and it just became, oh same old college forward. No idea what he's doing out there. You know, put a lawn chair out there to get more coverage. But I think he's gotten better in the field to the point that, He's not the automatic, oh, my God, we got to get this guy off the field guy. He still doesn't hit lefties that much, uh, that well. They will sit him against left-handers, but uh, the pop is real. He's going to hit 30 home runs. His average, I think, is 30 or 40 points higher than it was last year. Um, I'm taking the loss.
0: You also said you're bullish on Texas outfielder Nomar Mazzara. What's the story there?
2: He's a tricky guy because he's hitting more home runs, but his fly ball rate, I think, has gone down. And, you know, the first so you think, okay, well, no, the home run, the fly ball rate is, is really high, and, and maybe that looks unsustainable. But uh, he's pulling the ball more proactively, and I, I think his uh, his pull rate in general has gone up. So I suspect, I love where he is at his uh, area of experience. When you talk to, I forget if it was Rick Wolf or Gun Colton, I think it might have been Gun Colton, but correct me if I'm wrong. They talked about one of the things they like to do is find players who get over a certain experience level who are young players. I think they like Baez as a breakout guy because he had hit hit a certain threshold of experience, and they thought that's where a spike is likely to come. And is in that same pocket, third year, still young. The fact that he came up at such a young age is indicative of him having a high level of skill. And I get the idea that the home runs are coming Certainly not because he's hitting the ball more in the air, but he is pulling the ball more. And i I got to look this up and do a more granular research on it. But I wonder if he's getting in hitter counts and saying, okay, I'm looking right here in this one specific spot, and if he throws it here, I'm going to try to hit a home run. I mean, I wonder if he's getting that specific about his at-bat and learning how to control them once he has the leverage in the at-bat. So even though the fly ball rate hasn't gone up, and even though the home run to fly ball rate is going to look like a red flag to some people, to me this looks like a growth season.
0: You wrote that what you called the pumpkin risk is high on Marwin Gonzalez. I'm going to assume that's a reference to Cinderella's coach and that pumpkin story. And Gonzalez is looking like last season's great performance was more fluke than fact. But we know that they're not all Cinderella seasons. We see a breakout. We see a flop. How do we know which one is the real deal?
2: Right. I mean, earlier we were talking about the Merrifields and the Fams and the Gnats. that not it great when they're good the next season? And there may have been somebody yelling at, the, at, the, at their podcast, uh, provider hey what about marlon gonzalez you know he came out of nowhere and he stinks now think with gonzalez okay strikeout rate up six percent uh we know he's not really a he's a guy who will chip in with stolen bases but he's not going to get enough of them to really count on that and i worry you know his ovp now under under 300 for a team that values getting on b I don't, I don't think the uh, astros care really what his average is if you look at the Astros lineup every day, they have a bunch of guys who have, you know, good to okay averages, a couple of them bad averages, but they want them all to have some power, and they want them all to have on-base skills. And right now, Gonzalez under 300 um, on base, under 328 slugging, which is horrible, and the strikeout rate has gone up significantly. It's gone up about uh, by a third. So uh, all those things are moving in the wrong direction. And it's, this is one of those chicken-egg things where he's good – enough to play at a lot of positions, but he's not a plus defender to the point that they can say, oh, third base is yours, left field is yours. Certainly he's not going to bump Correa off of shortstop. Not good enough, really, to count on as a center fielder. Uh, of course, Springer has that job locked down anyway. But I wonder if if you're versatile but not great in the positions that you play, I, I don't know if that's a feature or a bug. I think you could argue either way on that.
0: Yeah, I was looking at that same uh, idea myself, and I I couldn't decide whether it's a feature or a bug is a good way to put it, because a a guy like Gonzalez, if he's hitting, and I think that's the key thing, or a guy back in the day like Tony Phillips, a team could look at him and say, yeah, he's not a plus-plus defender anywhere, but he's not a minus-minus defender anywhere either, and he, he allows us to carry a guy who's going to get his 500 plate appearances by spelling all these other guys, filling in for injuries, all of this kind of stuff. And I think that factor has probably been amplified by the fact that they're going with longer and longer pitching rosters and shorter and shorter benches. A guy like Marwin Gonzalez all of a sudden looks like a real attractive uh, proposition because even if he's on the bench, he can pinch hit. But more importantly, he can go out there every day playing somewhere.
2: I love Tony Phillips, too. I feel like we talk about Tony Phillips every time we get on a podcast. But, man, you know, I, I think Gonzalez, I think it's only human nature that a player like Gonzalez, and and I'll I'll throw the other guys, you know, the guys like Merrifield, the guys like Fam, the guys like Gannett, they probably needed to have reasonable starts just so their teams didn't think that maybe they were pumpkins. And you know, I, I guess it's maybe convenient for me to say that I'm I'm in on Fam and Merrifield and Gannett because they've done it for two months now. they played really well. So it's a lot easier to say, ah, you know, this worked out. If you drafted Gonzales, if you drafted Marlon Gonzalez, I have him in Tout Wars, and the only reason why, well, two reasons why. One, I thought he would walk enough that to, to have Tout Wars value. The fact that his OBP is under 300 is very disappointing to me, because I can live with him not hitting home runs or not stealing bases as long as he's getting on base, but he's not. I love the fact that he played a bunch of positions. And the main reason I got him is because the room gave, gave him to me at a reasonable price. So, I I think there was one of those things where nobody wanted to buy into last year's season at face value and pay full freight on that, and that's okay. But I think I got enough of a discount that it wasn't hard to ask Gonzalez to regress a decent amount and still make the price I paid. I believe it was the single digit price. I don't have it off the top of my head, but I think it might have been just seven or eight bucks or nine bucks or, you know, six bucks or something like that. So, I felt like he could regress and I could still make my money back. It turns out he's, I think, regressing a lot. And I think we're we're deep enough into the season, though, that I think you have to conclude people are probably in mixed leagues where I think Gonzalez is easily a guy you could drop.
0: Finally, a couple of name pitchers on your radar at Roto Arcade. Uh, you say first that you are still a full believer in Jose Barrios of the Twins. Hey, he's got a 360 ERA and a whip under one. What was not to believe in?
2: I hope I said that before he had his last start, or maybe his stats might have been a little bit weaker than that. I think he has the chance to be maybe a top 10, top 12 pitcher the rest of the year knockout strikeout stuff we saw him pitch really well in the world baseball classic a couple years ago and it looked like maybe the breakout was going to happen last year and for different reasons it didn't completely happen but i think he's going to be at least an sp2 the rest of the way i think he might be an sp1 so I, i i guess it's a case of i probably am getting on a very crowded bus but i feel like i'm near the front of the bus
0: same story with Garrett Cole. You said you're, you have to be inclined that his growth is real. Again, a guy who's having a terrific year. What was holding you back on that theory? I've
2: Nothing's held me back on Cole. I've been proactive about him. I, I thought he was going to have a step forward for Houston, not to this extent. But when he had that, I don't even know if we talked about this or not, but when he had that first big game, I had a league that auctioned uh, that week, a league, a league that auctions after the season starts, and he'd pitched once, maybe twice. And I decided I was going to get cold no matter what. I thought he was going to have a monster breakout, maybe all-star Cy Young type of season, or Cy Young contention type of season. I don't want to give it anybody a Cy Young in a league that has Corey Kluber and Chris Sale. And how incredible is it that Sale's never won a Cy Young, by the way? But um, I went to this auction. I told my friend, Frank Schwab, a uh, colleague at Yahoo, uh, who wasn't in this league, I said, I'm going to get Cole no matter what. And the next day, he's like, how'd the auction go? And I'm like, I didn't get Cole. <laughs> Somebody else wanted more than I did. But he's throwing different pitches with the Astros. He's gone into, you know, Pittsburgh was all, you know, throw the two-seamer, get the sinkers, get the ground balls, be efficient, pitch deep in the games. Now the Astros are like, you know, screw all that. Strike guys out. Set up your breaking pitches. These guys can't hit you. And if you strike them out on four pitches, who cares? You're not adding up a lot of pitches anyway. You know, sometimes guys will get strikeouts and have really bloated pitch counts. But as Derek Cardi has pointed out, that isn't necessarily always the case. And sometimes it's, accepted that any big strikeout guy is going to run up the pitches a lot of times these guys are really efficient while they're striking guys out i mean that's not a one-size-fits-all thing uh, you know, a lot of it depends on how often you're getting foul balls and you know all those you hate to see those at bats when you need 15 pitches to, or 10 pitches to put somebody away but um, just because somebody's getting strikeouts doesn't mean they can't pitch more than five or six innings you know it goes it's a much more complicated thing than that anyway you put cole with probably a smarter team with better support it's a pitcher park it used to be Gary Cole was get the ground ball, stay deep in the game, strike out three or four. Now it's like, screw that. Strike everybody out and, you know, strike out double digits, strike out 13 or 14 guys per nine, and you know, rely on your breaking pitches and, you know, throw four-seam fastballs, not two-seamers. So we clearly see that he's decided to be a strikeout pitcher and pitch to that pedigree he had coming out of UCLA. And now I think everybody knows this. I, I, this is kind of a little Captain Obvious, but I mean, he's a top-five pitcher for me.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, uh, during the season, as you know, uh, I like to ask my experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for their fantasy owners the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Uh, Let's start in the American League. Who's a boon hitter that could be helpful the rest of the way?
2: A couple of guys I like. Uh, Max Stassi is a right-handed catcher who's starting to get a lot of run for the Astros. It's helped. His case that Brian McCann is hurt. Uh, it's helped his case that um, their other catcher, uh, Gavin Gaddis, is just so poor defensively. I, I know Stassi had a couple, there were a couple of wild pitches on Wednesday that, that maybe could have been passed balls. Sometimes the official scores seem to slide with the uh, wild pitch when it's a borderline call. So I'm not saying Stassi's going to be Yadi million behind the plate, but uh, he's looked fine to me. His defensive metrics, again, hard to trust sometimes, but they look pretty good too. Mostly, I like him because he can hit. He hits very good against left-handed pitching. He showed pop, and this is all in a small sample. But you know, last night he had a double against Severino and a homer against Chapman. Maybe I have that backwards. Maybe it's the homer against Severino and the double against Chapman. I, I forget which way that was. But a couple of you know, got good guys who we got hits off. Numbers against lefties are great. Seven of his next ten starts, I think uh, the Houston games are going to be against lefties. Now Paxton Sale are on that list, but a lot of other lefties are not anywhere near as good as those guys. Bottom line is Stassi needs to play. He's a better defensive catcher than what they have. We don't know how long McCann's going to be out. And uh, if nothing else, if you're in a league or you're playing DFS or something, uh, you can mix and match and just get the best of Stassi, play him against the lefties. That looks really good to me. Uh, Brett Gardner finally showed signs of life this week. He did nothing for the first two months. A lot of people are screaming of why is he still batting leadoff. Uh, I, I see nothing in Brett Gardner's secondary scan that makes me concerned that he's all of a sudden a bad player. He's not so old that I think he has major cliff risk. It's easy to say once he has the two-homer game, but I, I was saying again to my friend Frank Schwab, I was saying earlier in the week that, you know, Gardner hasn't done anything, but I'm confident he's going to come around, and I think we're starting to see that now.
0: In the National League, who's a hitter you think could be a boon?
2: Uh, th- this story is already broken, so um, but I, it wouldn't be a podcast appearance for me if I didn't mention Matt Carpenter, who had still an OPS plus over 100 even when his stats were terrible or around 100 now it's well over 100 he's got uh, something like nine doubles and three or four homers in his last two weeks um, always hits the ball hard always hit, if you care about hard hit metrics Matt is always going to look good in that and uh, his shoulder hurt in spring training uh, you, I almost treat him like a pitcher now where you just hope he's not hurt And when he plays bad you almost expect that he is it seems like he's turned it around. And again, I'm 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 late on this. I wish I could have said this three weeks ago or two weeks ago because now it may be too late to use the Carpenter Intel. I think Jesus Aguilar in um, in Milwaukee is the real deal. His minor league res- resume is actually better than people realize. and He was pretty good last year. Seems like he's going to be parked third in this Milwaukee lineup. He's hitting behind Kane and Yelich. Yeah, Parkton's third in a good lineup. Even with Braun back, they still keep Megalar third. His resume looks better than I think people realize. I don't think this came completely out of nowhere. He was a useful player last year. I think he's going to hold value all year. Uh, the Matt Harvey, doesn't, Devin Masarocco trade, I think is going to be a big win for the Mets. The big problem for Masarocco has always been staying healthy. When he's healthy, the guy can hit. He's already hit a handful of home runs, and this is a year where catching is a wasteland. I want to get in on Masuraco. i I think he's the real deal again.
0: To the mound we go. How about a Boone pitcher in the American League?
2: Blake Trinan. Uh, people already know that he's having a great season. I don't think they really maybe how good it is. Um, part of it may be East Coast bias. Maybe people don't stay up to watch the Oakland games. Maybe people realize, you know, hey, this guy was terrible last year in Washington. But he's developed that power sinker. It's like hitting a brick, getting a lot of strikeouts. They use him in tie games. They use him aggressively. They'll use him for multiple innings, which is very smart. You may pick up an extra winner here or, here or there, and you're going to get a bunch of saves. I think Trinan is like a top-six closer, and he's not seen as that. People, I think he's probably number top-10 or top-12. I think he's like top-five, top-six.
0: And in the National League, a Boone pitcher?
2: Uh, sounds like the Marlins are sick of Brad Ziegler, so uh, I think everybody knows that Kyle Barraclough has knockout stuff, and Riders is an interesting option, too. One of those guys is going to be their closer. I would bet on Barraclough. hate saying it because uh, Ziegler is such a great guy. Um, I don't know him personally, but I know people who do, and they just said that you know he just could not be a better person, and just more down to earth. So I, I hate to see Brad Ziegler struggling, and obviously the Marlins aren't going anywhere, but the, at some point they have to respect the rest of the room and, and do what's best for being competitive on, on some level, and that means it sounds like Barraclough is going to be their close, right? Again, anybody who's listening to this podcast is smart and is probably already angling to try to get you know, these guys. They may already own them because they were just helping your ratio anyway. But uh, I like those guys. Uh, Dan Winkler is an interesting pitcher in Atlanta. Uh, Tommy John, uh, four weeks ago, uh, he's the setup guy in Atlanta, and maybe he's not going to take the closing job from Vizcaino. It seems like the Braves are giving Vizcaino a pretty good leash. But uh, A.J. Minter has been a little bit disappointing. He's also a left-hander. If Vizcaino did need any kind of a timeout, or even just a, maybe a 1A to, to his one as the, as the guy, it could be Winkler. Uh, huge strikeout to walk rate. Uh, the ratios are ridiculous. They're probably a little, a little bit unsustainable right now. ERA and WHIP are both below one. But I think the rest of the season, is ERA starting now will still be below two or around two. WHIP may be around even one. He's going to strike out better than a batter per inning. Uh was an interesting prospect, but I, he got hurt by the elbow, got hurt by Colorado. He actually became a Rule 5 pick. So he was on nobody's radar before the season. I think he's legitimate. Uh, and this uh, stripling kid, stripling, stripling, I think it's stripling, for the Dodgers, he had unbelievable stats in relief. They put him into the rotation. And I don't think people th- thought that much of it at first because he couldn't go deep in games. You know, he was pitching in relief, right? So, you know, 50, 60 pitches. Those are turning into 80 to 90 pitch outings. His last three starts have been unbelievable. Dodgers, of course, all sorts of injuries. Maeda's hurt, and Ruse hurt, and, you know, Rich Hill's, you know, the. The super as Jeff Erickson calls it. I mean, you never know when he's going to be available. Sounds like they're getting Kershaw back, but they need stripling in the rotation for the rest of the year. His ratios are just screaming. I think he's legitimate. I think you treat him as a set-and-forget starter the rest of the season.
0: Scott Pianowski's boons uh, in the American League, Max Stassi and Brett Gardner for hitters in the National, Matt Carpenter, Jesus Aguilar, Devin Mazaraco, In the American League, pitcher Blake Trinan and in the National League, relief pitchers like Kyle Baraclaw and Drew Steckenrider, Dan Winkler, reliever in Atlanta, A.J. Minter also, and starter Dan Stripling of the Dodgers. Let's move over to the Baines now, guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, start in the American League again with a hitter who could be a disappointment.
2: I think people are misunderstanding the shifting role of the stolen base in baseball and how it relates to fantasy. They think, oh, nobody runs anymore. That must make stolen bases really important. No, it means you don't have to really worry about them, and you get them a number of ways. And if you can just get enough chipping guys, you're probably still doing well in the category. It's why I will never draft um, Billy Hamilton, for example. But, I mean, we, we all know Billy Hamilton stinks. Malik Smith is probably overrated in today's fantasy environment, because he doesn't hit for power at all. You don't necessarily need his steals as much as you may think you need them. The thing is, when everybody's hitting home runs, you need more home runs. When nobody's running, you need fewer stolen bases. Malik Smith has an average that doesn't really pass the sniff test. He's got a really high BABIP. Part of that's explained by the fact that he runs really well, but it's still unsustainable. So the average is going to come down. No power at all. I don't like that offense. I think you can compete in stolen bases without Malik Smith, and not only that, but when you take on a Malik Smith, you have to make up for the things he doesn't do, like every hit for power or drive-in runs. And they, they don't even play him against all kinds of pitching, so you might just lose some counting stats just by the fact that he's not in the lineup all the time. This is a great time to go to the guy who may be panicking about stolen bases and say, hey, get Malik Smith. You'll, you'll fix your uh, stolen base problem. He's going to bring on other pro- – you bring on – you may solve a problem with Alex Smith. You bring on two or three other problems. I think he's a great guy to try to sell right now.
0: In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a bane?
2: give you one uh, honest one – honest one. One obvious one. They're all honest. One obvious one and, and maybe one not as obvious. Uh, Matt Kemp has really great stats. Terrible defender. Eventually, the Dodgers are going to have a surplus of outfielders. Kemp also has had injury problems in in his 30s. I don't trust anything I'm seeing. None of it looks real to me. And, and, you know, if anybody who asked Kemp, I'm sure they picked him up for a dollar. They picked him up off waivers. So, you know, you got him for nothing. You're doing great. But I don't think it is – I'm not just going to say unsustainable. I think he's going to crash. I think he's either going to get hurt or he's going to go into a major slump, or the Dodgers are going to have enough good players that Kemp's playing time is going to be compromised in part because he can't play defense, and he's just at an age where um, I just think it's going get—it's not going to get worse for Kemp. I think it's going to fall apart. Uh, so I would try to, not that anybody in your league is, is banging down your door to get Kemp, but I would have him on the tiniest leash possible. I'd have no problem throwing him into a trade. And I would just be ready for, I, I think this is going to hit a cliff and just fall way down. I don't believe any of what he's doing. Gregory Polanco frustrates me. Strikeouts are up. Uh, the walks are up, too. You wonder if maybe he's being a little bit too patient in at-bats. And then when he when he gets, when the hitters, when the pitchers um, get even with him in the count or ahead of him in the count, nobody hits well when they're behind in the count. But I think that Polanco, it's just to the point that once he's behind in the count, he'll swing at anything. You can just roll the ball up there and he hacks at it. And, Uh, Not running as much this year. Maybe that's not as big of a deal in today's baseball. But I get the idea that Polanco's a guy that we all waited for that growth breakout season. He had the pedigree. He signed out of his arbitration years. They viewed him as a future star. And I'm starting to think that's never going to happen for Polanco. I I have him on a couple of teams. And honestly, if if he would present any kind of a selling window, I wouldn't do it overtly. If you want to sell a guy like Malik Smith or Polanco sometimes, maybe you just say, hey, I have outfielders, and see if they come to the name. See if they come to Polanco or they come to the guy, Kemp, the guy you want to move. I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing any of these guys are going to be uh, players you're going to get a mint for. But sometimes you need to, to go to the other owner with a general idea and then see if you can get more specific and land on the player that you wanted to land on all, all the time. I'm starting to doubt that Polanco's ever going to become anything that he was projected to be. I
0: think Polanco might face a little uh, playing time risk as well with Austin Meadows having Yeah, with Meadows playing a- well,
2: that's a great point. That's a great point.
0: In the uh, American League, who's a pitcher who could be a Bane?
2: Charlie Morton's got unbelievable numbers, and he was a breakout player last year, and I really like Charlie Morton. He's the down-to-earth guy. He's a great interview. Um, he's talked about he's not going to play baseball that much longer because he wants to do other things in his life, which I just think it's cool to see somebody have a balanced view of their life, but he's also got a really good rep right now. I, I mentioned our mutual friend Jeff Erickson earlier. I mean, he thought that Morton was already better than Keichel, and which may be true. Uh, I think You could look at Morton's stats for the last year and a half and sell maybe him as a top 20, top 25 pitcher. And I'm I'm still not convinced Morton goes deep enough in games to do that. Um, There's not enough of a resume here. I I just, there's something about, I think we're getting to the point now where everybody's jumping in two feet on Morton. And I I think it's just a little bit, this this may sound like a vague way to describe it, but I, I just feel like we've gone a little bit too far. I think he might be over his skis at this level, and it might be a good time to see what you can get for him.
0: And finally, a pitcher in the National League who's a bane.
2: I'll give you three guys. Uh, Jeremy Hellickson has terrific numbers right now, but he goes like five or five and a third, or you know, he goes. It seems like every one of his starts has a five in it. I mean, he just doesn't go deep in games. He doesn't strike a lot of guys out. I think he's still useful. He's like kind of like a Daniel Mengden type, where he's going to pitch to contact, and he'll probably have a lot of games where he doesn't get knocked around. But the strikeouts generally aren't there, and I, I think you could. It's not that again. Not that people are banging down your door saying, "I got to have Alexson I'll pay whatever you want." I, I know nobody's thinking that way. His his days as a prospect are long gone. But I think you could, if people look at his ERA and WHIP at face value and don't look at the actual individual game logs and see how deep he's pitching in games, they might talk themselves into thinking he's a little bit more valuable than he is. Uh, John Gray's a guy. Not that again. Not that people think John Gray is the end of the world, but I think everybody looks at his raw stuff and his pedigree and. He had that big strikeout game against the Padres last year at Coors. It was 15 or 16 strikeouts, something like that. I think people think, yeah, Coors is terrible for pitching, but I can beat it. Gee, Gray's the exception. The only exception that I can ever remember for a long period of time was Ybaldo Jimenez, and that seemed like it came and went, and then all of a sudden that didn't work anymore either. And, And Colorado... Always a good place to hit, but especially when the weather warms up. Gene McCaffrey's talked about this. You know, Colorado doesn't start off as a park that kicks your ass, but eventually gets there. I don't know why people talk themselves into John Gray. I just, it's Colorado. Why? I'm going to give you a choice. You can run uphill for the next 10 miles or run at flat level, or run on flat ground, or maybe even downhill in the right pitcher park. People want to run uphill with John Gray. I don't get it. Uh, Julio Tehran's become frustrating for me. Nothing's uh, having a great season. ERA's around four, but I feel like he can allow seven or eight runs in any start. And then he'll pitch against the Red Sox. And I'll say, yeah, I've got to bench him. And then he'll pitch well. Uh, just Some of these guys, Kevin Gossman's like this. Some of these guys are erratic. I, I know Gossman was somebody I, I think that Colton might have liked a few weeks ago. Um, but with me, I always guess wrong on Gossman. And maybe the point is you try to get as many good pitchers as you can so you don't have to guess. But Tehran to me, is one of those, the, the matrix of Tehran guys. I just can't figure him out. I don't know when he's going to pitch well. I don't know when he's going to pitch poorly. When he has two starts, if I see a Washington or a Boston on the schedule, I, I don't necessarily trust him anyway. And, and then you ask yourself, why am I benching a guy who has two starts? Why do I even own him? I'm not sure that Helixson, Tehran, or Gray, any of these guys would be easy to trade. You kind of have to keep Helixson, because he's been successful for a while, but I think they're all overrated for different reasons, and especially if nothing else. The next time John Gray strikes out 11, guys, don't don't talk yourself into John Gray. I know he's got great raw ability, but Colorado is going to be above sea level for the rest of the season. You don't, don't run uphill when you don't have to.
0: Scott Pianowski's Baines, Malik Smith, Matt Kemp, Gregory Polanco, Charlie Morton, Jeremy Hellickson, John Gray and Julio Tehran. Scott, boy, this has been terrific as always. I really do appreciate it. Tell listeners where they can find out more from Scott Pianowski.
2: I'm on Twitter very regularly. Maybe more than I should be, but uh, Scott underscore Pianowski, P-I-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. And uh, we can talk about wherever you want. I mean, on this pod, we talked about baseball. We talked about hockey. We talked about basketball. Um, I love to talk about music, um, I will talk about movies, you know, I'm always talking music with, with Laura Michaels or you know, with some of the other Tout Wars guys, um, so if you want to talk baseball, you know, obviously we're in season, we're in the thick of the fantasy season, so that's one of my favorite topics, but I want to talk fantasy football, we talked that earlier, uh, I think briefly, or we have talked about it in the past, uh, that's a great topic too, so I, I'm open, you come to me with your subject and we'll talk about it, you want to talk about a great hamburger you had, I'm all ears. And uh, the Roto-Arcade blog, Yahoo Fantasy Sports, that's where most of my writing is. Um, we uh, also have other media uh, things that we have on Yahoo. We have videos and stuff that you might want to check out. And uh, you'll go over to Yahoo, play fantasy baseball, which is still available if you want another league. Uh, fantasy football has opened up if you want to start that. So uh, hang out with me. Uh, let's talk on Twitter. Uh, hang out over at Yahoo Sports, and let's figure this stuff out together.
0: Scott, thanks a million. We'll talk to you again soon.
2: My pleasure, man. You're the best in the business. Uh, you're radio pro through and through, and it is just an honor to talk to you. And um, and not only that, an honor to listen to you um, with all the other great guests you have. Thanks for including me in the mix. I really do appreciate it.
0: Scott Pianowski writes for Yahoo Sports. When we come back, it's our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes next on Baseball HQ Radio.
4: He's sitting on 714.
2: Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging! There's a drive into left center
0: field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7:15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry
4: Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
7: Good to be back with you,
0: PD. In the Z-Files at Rotowire, your regular weekly column, always a lot of fun to read. And uh, on uh, last Friday, you started uh, a column, three-part series, I guess it's going to work out to be, where you're looking at the uh, current Performers at the top of the projections uh, at the top of the current list, and comparing them with how they projected at the start of the season. Uh, before we talk about particular players, uh, who are the biggest surprises for you as far as overachievers?
7: Um, I kind of I kind of looked at it by by position. So I, let's see. So we did the catchers in the infield this particular this particular run. So let's see who I uh, I think Scooter Jeanette has got to be. I, I'm saying that, but then we take a look at his yearly stats, and maybe it shouldn't have been as big of a surprise as it is. But, uh, you know, to just to sort of answer the question, I think Scooter Jeanette is is surprising me to that, that he's maintaining this level of play. At, uh, so I think he would have to be one. You know, I think his Monte Gundal is a bit of a surprise, although we can hedge there too and say that that was more of a coach's-manager's decision to play Austin Barnes, the underlying numbers of Grindel last year were still pretty good. But uh, heading into the season, all indications were that he'd be at least splitting time with Austin Barnes. So the fact that he's pretty much the the bell cow catcher for the Dodgers and producing so well, I think that has to be considered a surprise. Because I think uh, we actually had, I think we had, uh, I say we, because the rankings, what I used were composite rankings from the RotoWire staff, as opposed to anybody's individual projections so it's kind of a group think we had Austin Barnes in the top 15 and we didn't have Grendel there so i think that has to be considered a surprise
0: you also had Francisco Cervelli uh, nowhere on the top 15 projected and here he is the third best overall fantasy catcher that's quite uh, something too
7: yeah a lot of that has to do with you know year long projections as we as you know we talk about in, in various contexts. you know they assume the player is playing the whole entire year and with Cervelli's concussion history and it's not just recent his concussion history goes back years. He just went through a spell where he didn't, you know, he was lucky enough that he was concussed for, for a few years stretch. But it goes back a while. And as you know, those don't go away. They just, you know, it's not like it doesn't go away. Um, it's still, it's, it's, always there. And a matter of fact, they're cumulative. So he was pretty lucky in those interim years. Anyway, the point being, season long, you, you hedge it bats. So his ranking is going to drop on a per plate appearance basis. He may have been a top 15 catcher. He wouldn't have been top three where he well, he was when I did the rankings. I'm not, you know, even in a one week period when you only have seven weeks of a season, eight weeks of a season, you could drop or or rise precipitously. But uh, the point being, he's been healthy and his power has been up a little bit. So sure, those that took a chance on Francisco Cervelli as a second catcher saying, you know what, I'll play him. And if when he gets hurt, I'll worry about it then. (laughs) They haven't had to worry about it for a while, uh, at least to this point.
0: At first base, a couple of surprises uh, for you. CJ Krohn wasn't on anybody's list uh, for the projected top 15, and neither was Justin Smoke, despite his pretty decent year last year, and yet they're both top 15 current.
7: Let's go back and let's say that we knew that Krohn would be playing full-time with Tampa. Would he have made the top 15 I'm kind of looking, and I'm seeing, you know, we had Eric Thames at the end, Matt Carpenter, Matt Olson. He may have made the top 15. He wouldn't have been ranked fourth, or you know, top five where he might be now. So I think that's that, that that's kind of a cool thing. The uh, the power has played, but uh, the thing with Crone, and I'm trying to, I, I believe it was this piece that I that I wrote it was um yeah it was this piece because I've written about him a few times. I I, I pretty I, I, I actually wrote you know I expect him to fall short of 40 homers. Then I sort of started to build up my, or look at the reason for the, you know, I just assume that. Then I started to look at the data to build my case. I'm like, wait, why? I mean, he might, but I, I can't build a case that, that, that just says he's going to. I mean, he may not. It's going to be tough in that park. The batting second, the uh, the lineup is, uh, you know, you don't have to worry as much when you're that high up in the order. He's going to get his plate appearances, so this could be finally be uh, C.J. Krohn's year. And Smoke? He's always been somebody that uh, our friend, our, you know, you've had him on the show, Mike Podhorser has had as someone who has some latent power because of his fly ball distance. And last year, it just kind of, kind of came to fruition. But I think a lot of people sort of hedged it, didn't think that the, he'd be able to maintain quite that rate. And the other thing it speaks to, though, is, is it just speaks to how deep first base is. And when you make the back end of the top 15, it also means that guys like Paul Goldschmidt and Anthony Rizzo, aren't in the top 15 so far this season and you know, somebody has to be. So it's kind of a combination of both.
0: At third base, it seemed like they followed the form a little more closely. Guys at Mm -hmm. the top include Manny Machado, Jose Ramirez, Nolan Arenado, and they were pretty much at the top in slightly different order in the projections. Uh, Mike Moustakis is the third most productive uh, fantasy third baseman so far. He wasn't on the list because he was a free agent at the time, I'm going to guess. But we also have names on there like Christian Villanueva, Eugenio Suarez, uh, Matt Davidson, and Evan Longoria is number 14. He didn't make the list either, and I'm mistaken. Mike was on the list down at the bottom.
7: Some people ignore team context, and uh, and and I think that's what, uh, or, or and over or overemphasize for it, and uh, that may have been what went on here. Is like he's, the team's not going to score runs, I'm going to leave him down. But the top of the order, even on poor teams, usually produces runs. But anyway, yeah, no, this was I don't it was it was close to chalk. Kristen Villanueva is is just an excellent example of he didn't have top pedigree, but he had enough of a pedigree, enough of a minor league. Background, uh, success, background that a team like the Padres can afford to give him a shot. You know, they 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 picked up Chase Headley in a, in more of a what more of an accounting measure, right? In the in the deal with the Yankees, so they got Chase Headley back. I don't think anybody expected Headley to be the guy. And keep in mind that at the beginning of the year they had Perella and Spangenberg. They had a, they had a, 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 just a an overload of players, and that was even after getting rid of Salarte. So a team, you know, a, a player who's shown some signs in the minor league career on a team that's just looking for anything to you know throw it against the wall and stick it was kind of a nice match and he you know went gangbusters early on slid back and is kind of settled into a you know a decent but not great but but someone who's going to slump and get out of it type of hitter so you know it's just it, it's one of those you know I, I try to think of you know third or way through the season what can i what can i apply till next year What can I? What? What? What's the take-home message? And for me, it might be to. Well, not might be. It is, is to look at teams. Well, I was gonna say like the Padres. The Padres could be in the same boat next year. Look for teams that have this sort of ability to test guys out, audition guys, and especially in all these draft and hold leagues that are now so popular. These are the sort of players. The Christian Villanueva is is sort of the players you want to put on those. In the reserve rounds of those teams, because there's a, there's always a chance, and uh, in, in in a fab league in a league where you're not doing that, when he does get hot early, you can say to yourself, well, this is a team that can afford to see what they have. So I think that's kind of one of the uh, mess- you know, is he going to be top fifteen in the next third or the final third of the season? You know what? Probably not. But I think a guy like Villanueva and David's into a lesser extent, he's a little bit older, although he's hurt now. You just you have to sort of go beyond the numbers and think about the situation when you're trying to evaluate, uh, you know, good and bad players. I think that's the difference, you know, roster constructs. Some guys that put together rosters, they don't know what an SGP is. They don't know what you know replacement method value is. They just know how to put together a roster. And I think these are some of the things they think about.
0: At shortstop, Todd, I wasn't really surprised to see Andrelton Simmons as number five in the current shortstops. I was a little surprised to notice that he wasn't on anybody's list uh, in the preseason projection.
7: I am too, and I'm beginning to wonder if I need to go back and see if I happen to miss it. But um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll go with it for now. And the, the and and yeah, especially he he he's running a little bit and he's putting a little bit, showing a little bit of power. And in that lineup, in the improved lineup, and I think coming into the season, we I think we should have assumed that the lineup would be improved with I'm uh, not even just Otane, just in general, uh, that that he probably should have uh, been in. And I'm looking at the guys that are in there. Um, we have Zach Cozart, his teammate, and. Uh, Villar may have been in there because of some steals. Gonzalez. I'm not sure who we who would. He would have. You know, whenever you say where you, why isn't he in there? You have to f- kind of figure out who you're going to knock out. So I'm. If he was probably pretty close. If we, if he wasn't in the top, if I happen to miss him, he was probably pretty close. And this also speaks to just how deep shortstop is. We we talk about scarcity. Had a recent roundtable discussion for Tout Wars, and one of the myths that people uh, like to debunk was the fact there isn't scarcity. We've talked about it for years. I think I debunked that myth ten years ago. But the point being, take a look and you know, just the fact that we didn't rank Simmons in the top 15 it goes to speak towards just how deep shortstop is. And uh, you know, he, may, he may he may fall a little bit, but he like you know the 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 running that he's doing along with the run production in that lineup, he's been hitting in a pretty good spot. Uh, Simmons is a nice nice, uh, especially in points leagues for whatever reason. He's a, a, he also floats to the top in points leagues. A nice shortstop to have if you don't get one of the studs. The other guy I knew you were going to ask about him, but I was happy to look at him. Brandon Crawford is another guy that's kind of like a, a next year sort of thing. Last year he had an off year. You know who know who knows where he ends up this year. But I'll bet if you take last year and this year's numbers at the end of the season and average them, you kinda of come out with the guy that we thought we had the whole time. It's just that he just, you know, he had uh his his not even call it regression, but his 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 numbers were just so disparate over an entire two year period. That's why that's why we use three and five year basis for for projections. It's just that uh last year we were under on Crawford. This year he's gonna be over what we expected and like I said you average him out and, and he's the player we all thought he was.
0: Moving along to the disappointments, uh, guys who were projected to do well and aren't doing well. Uh, starting again with the catchers: uh, Jonathan Lucroy, Mike Zanino, Russell Martin—three veteran backstops uh, in the top fifteen. None of them in the top fifteen as far as actual current production is concerned.
7: Lucroy was kind of a crapshoot, and we weren't we really weren't sure. So I, I'm not—I I don't think that we're gonna—you know—I don't think we should lose our so-called experts' cards because of Lucroy didn't end up in the top. Uh, we weren't even sure how much playing time he was going to get. Zanino's a little bit odd, and I think it's just that his batting average is just so low. I'll bet he ends up in the top 15 by season's end. And I'm trying to think if he if he lost playing time, was he hurt? If he was, it wasn't for very long. But that that you know, in, in some instances, that could be sort of the case. And you know, who, R- Russell Martin, I mean you know i when you're a- aging a catcher some the fall off can happen pretty quickly and uh although this is a guy that's been out and played third base and shortstop in left field so at least you know you'd think is athletically he's you know he's not hurting so to speak but still sometimes it's hard to um sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly when the fall off is going to be i just uh it's been it's been trending downward and that's the other thing too with projections uh you know if you if you take a look at it, say a three two one the the next number should be zero, but if you do projections, it's something around two. So maybe in Martin's case it it was a trend and you know, it isn't a weighted average, the best way to go, and perhaps that was the mistake there. Does
0: it say anything to you about the, the rate of falloff of catchers as opposed to guys who are playing other positions? There's a, a long standing baseball HQ idea that says catchers come into their own as hitters a little later in their careers because of the challenges of playing the position defensively. Then because they start late, they finish late. Is there maybe now do we need to add a corollary that says, and when they fall, they fall fast?
7: Right now, a lot of people, myself included, they just kind of lump the players together yeah, now we have the data and we, we have the ability to do... Proje- I'm sure there are people that do this too. I'm, maybe it's just me that needs to do this now. Uh, you, maybe you do need to do projections on a more granular basis and look at the... the um, there's always an aging curve. Maybe we need a steeper aging curve for catchers and, and maybe it needs to even go even further and have the, not just by position, but by skill set that I'm sure, you know, steals and power and, and, and contact and all the individual skills... May have their own weighting, and so instead of just giving an overall uh, uh, weighting curve for, for age, maybe this needs, which is you know the original Marcells, at this point with all the data there, perhaps some analysis needs to be done, and I know it needs, and I know it needs to be done, and I'm kind of starting to do it, to uh, to, to, to to regress and or age each stat individually, and not do it by the player.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, uh, the aging curve probably doesn't affect power especially or batting average nearly as much as some of those other Skills that are more based on just athleticism as speed comes to mind immediately. But um, I think the wear and tear on catchers might be something that makes them age more quickly. Although then you get guys like Yadder Molina in St. Louis who seems to go on forever, but now he's falling off, and maybe that fall off is going to be really, uh, really d- difficult as well. Uh, at first base, uh, you had an interesting anecdote about. Uh, picking second in the second <laughs> round of your NFBC main event league. Your heart said Freddie Freeman. Your your brain said Joey Votto. You took Votto, and here's Freeman number one overall among first basemen
7: while Votto is scuffling around in 10th. I trusted my Votto numbers. He's been 9th and 11th the past couple of years, and I had him, I think, right around 9 or 10, and I like, guess this, this was the second pick, so it's, what, 17 or 16? 16, 16 or so. So the, the, the numbers said Votto, but I just, one of those, I just, I just, you know, Freeman's been hurt. I love the park. I love the team. It just could be, it felt like one of those years. And I, I, I almost, you know, I, I, almost said, you know, Joey Frodo. I mean, I, I, it's cause I, I knew I wanted to change it, but I went with, uh, I went with Votto. Votto's picked it up a little. I mean, Freeman's going to continue to be Freddie Freeman, but yeah, I just, uh, one of those things too. It's not always taking one from the top and you know, what I, you know, trust your own rankings, the whole nine yards, there is something to be said, you know, they're static numbers. I don't think Votto had any had any more upside over the number ten ranking. A matter of fact, he had probably more downside than he did upside if you if you were to draw a curve around his rank. Whereas Freddie Freeman, who wasn't I mean, he hadn't ranked pretty close. It wasn't like I was reaching for a third rounder. Um, if you were to draw an expectation curve around his static projection it, it you know there would have been a lot of overlap. A matter of fact, you know Freeman's upside may be higher than Votto's upside. So I could have actually, you know, if I needed to, I don't not that I need to, but if I needed to rationalize the pick to somebody, you know, I'm a subscriber and you didn't pick Fred, you you picked Freddie Freeman. Why would you do that? Well, you know, just as I explained, because of the upside. So I kind of knew it, and we'll see. It's still a long season, and uh, a lot of things can still happen. I ex- still I expect Votto to get better. I expect Cincinnati to get better. But um, I just feel by the end of the season, I wish I'd gone Freeman. And maybe, again, you know, the take-home message while I'm doing these things, and hopefully I'll remember them all when I draft next year, is to, you know, be, be selective as to when you want to use this, the upside. I mean, it's not like Freeman's a bad player. He still has a pretty good floor. So that may have been an instance to, to change the rankings. And the next question then is, do I need to actually change the ranking? To have had Freddie Freeman higher than Votto, which is something that uh, I need to sort of uh, think about come the off-season.
0: And then there's also the conventional wisdom about you can't afford to take a lot of risk with those top picks. And even if your heart said Freeman and there's a lot of analytical heft behind taking Freddie Freeman or at least looking at him, you did mention that the injury risk and yeah. something that Votto doesn't have is injury risk. I mean, he plays every game every year all the time and his, and his results have been very consistent over time. I think there's... Um, a case to be made that had you taken Freddie Freeman, you might have been one of those guys who uh, got the right outcome with the wrong process.
7: In three weeks, you could be saying, "Hey, remember when you said you're about Freeman? Well, he just got—he's now out for the year." Yeah. So we shall see. Although a lot of Freeman—not a lot—a couple of Freeman's injuries have been hit by pitches. People say these things are flukes, but I mean, batters that hang on over the plate or you know stride into the ball are more susceptible to getting hit by pitches. I mean, Jeff Bagwell got hit twice in the first two years, and you know, pretty much went on to a pretty good career, but there are some batters that are just a little more susceptible. So we, we shall see.
0: At second base, the top three were Jose Altuve, Brian Dozier, and D. Gordon. Uh, D. Gordon's holding up his end of the bargain. He's also third in the current performance rankings, but Altuve's way down at an eighth and Dozier's off the list entirely. Uh, let's, let's focus in on Jose Altuve. What's going on there?
7: had a lot of conversations uh, on Twitter and in in person with our our colleague Derek Hardy and he was not so much anti-Altuve, he was just anti-Altuve being top second, third player off the board because and I've talked about this too, if you take the name away, you just look at the underlying metrics, you don't see special you see a low hit rate and you see, you know, a low walk rate. You, you don't see, but you say, oh, well, this guy can hit these good, great contact. But you wonder where the power comes from. And you wonder where all this stuff is coming from. And, but you put the name back on there and it's a guy that's done this for five years. He's out earned Mike Trout three of the past five years and tied him the fourth year. You know, he's such an affable guy, the, 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 the world series. And he's, you know, the junior you know, seem next to Aaron judge. He's just, you know, things like that. But the point being the they they're, they're, There is there was more. I think there was more risk is more risk in his underlying numbers than say Mike Trouts. And what I failed to do coming into the season was factor. I don't want to say it's been five years of luck, but his hard hit rate is low and some of the other numbers just aren't that special. I don't think I, I factored in enough of a downside to Altuve. I probably would have had him ranked third, second, third, fourth still, but I think it may have been a mistake to have him ranked number one. So I, I, I mentioned this, and maybe maybe it wasn't clear with the writing. I tried to get a little cute with the way I write, the, write these things, and somebody said, how can you say Altuve's been the luckiest player for five years? You have no credibility, yada, yada, yada. Um, well, the fact is his batting average is still fine, but if you take his uh, counting stats. You know, he had the point but he was saying he's not a disappointment. If you take and count his stats and you prorate him out, he is a disappointment today, even with the exceptional batting average. So even if he becomes Jove Altuve the rest of the season and and, and gets the power back and although I I think there was signs that he won't run as much and I think they're still there, you know, at the end of the season he is going to have a disappointing set of numbers, which may mean he's a tenth or eleventh player off the board next year and maybe the fifth or sixth overall player. So he may be a, a player to target next year. But I think that sort of thing and is that, and I think we've even talked about it because this is coming out on Twitter. People, you know, all you hear about average exit velocity. Well, that could be, if it's like, you know, if it's 90, it could be clustered around 90 or you could have someone that has, you know, a bunch of hits at 80 and then a bunch more at 110. And when you average it, it's 90 or 95 or whatever it might be. I think that's what's happening with Altuve and the hard hit rate. He's got such great play coverage. Some of these sort of dinks and dunks into right field that he you know, that he just barely makes contact with uh, over the outside corner that go for hits, have a low exit velocity, they're not hard hit, but yet he has the ability to turn on an inside mistake, on a breaking ball, on, on hanger, things like that, get in his wheelhouse, and he has the ability to hit it hard, to pull it hard. So his average... Hard hit rate or exit velocity, whichever way you want to do it, the average may be low. But I think if you to look at the cluster, there'll be a cluster of very hard hit balls, and a cluster of lower uh, of softer hit balls that average out to where it is. So it may be hidden in in the average that that's why he's got so much power is because he's capable of uh, of, of poking them, you know, on, on inside pitches or mistakes or something like that. And he's just I don't want to call it penalized, but because he's such great plate coverage. He's making soft contact for hits on on pitches that other people are either taking or swinging and missing.
0: Yeah, I did a master notes of a while back for Baseball HQ, and I, th- I don't know, but I think they might have turned it into a research piece, and I was asking the same question. If you've got a guy with an average exit velocity of 90 miles an hour, is it because he's got a bunch of 70s and a bunch of 110s, or is it because he's clustered mostly around 90? And in the overall, it turned out they were mostly clustered around 90, and, and that there, there uh, weren't any uh, guys who jumped out. Uh, because I didn't actually search for them too aggressively uh, who were the opposite that they were building uh, averages of 90 because they were hitting a lot of 70s and a lot of 110s but I wonder if uh, we need to get more granular on that too and start looking at these averages and saying what's the form of the average here?
7: Yep, and it also I think it has to do with we, 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 we talk exit velocity you, you have to do that hand in hand with launch angle they do go hand in hand and it it could be that the Higher exit velocities have the better launch angle, and the lower exit velocities have the a uh, worse launch angle uh, re- with respect to getting hits. And it just may be that's what's uh, hidden within the numbers why a guy like Jose Altuve is so successful. But even you know, even saying all this, I still think that I, I still do think that my mistake was uh, if, if a projection is supposed to be a weighted average of all plausible outcomes, there's a uh, you know. Various definitions of what consider projection to be, but if you, if you use the one where it's a weighted average of all plausible outcomes, I probably didn't have enough of the, there's a little bit of luck baked into these numbers over the past five years outcomes in my static projection.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you'd want to look at barrels for a guy like Altuve, and you probably would want to check line drive rate as well. Because, you know, the more we find out about these launch angles and exit velocities and so forth, the more as you parse through it and start bucketing uh, categories of hits and categories of balls in play – it turns out if you hit the ball hard on a line drive trajectory, you're going to get a lot of hits, <laughs> you know? And, and we <laughs> yeah. we knew that like 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Actually, we probably knew it back in the 40s because we saw Joe DiMaggio hitting a lot of line drives and getting a lot of hits. Yep. Uh, well, I didn't see it personally as old as I am, but you get the, the, the impression. Uh, at third base... I don't think we need to really say much about the disappointments here. Josh Donaldson, Justin Turner, Miguel Sano, Adrian Beltre, they're all hurt. And you can't can't account for that and you can't be held uh, liable for it in your projections, I don't think, Uh, although Beltre uh, in the latter part of his career has had a few more than others. So let's move right on to shortstops. It's pretty much gone to chalk. A uh, couple of exceptions. Zach Cozart was projected 15th. He's not on the list, uh, which was kind of something you'd expect. Marwin Gonzalez was listed as a shortstop, could have been listed almost anywhere and been a disappointment. He's uh, mm-hmm. projected 11th and off the chart. And Orlando Arcia, number 10. Uh, talk to me about Orlando Arcia. We had big expectations not being met.
7: The take-home lesson as far as draft goes be, would be, you know, a disappointing player this year, and Gene McCaffrey calls him last year's bum. So this is nothing new. But to take it to the sort of the next step, when doing a draft or an auction, if you put a couple of these guys, you know, as your as your middle infield or your corner infield or, your, or your utility, you know, draft two guys that were disappointing last year, hoping that one of them does the bounce back. Arcia could be could be one of the two that I that I put in that space. He was sent down. Uh, I don't want I want you know, maybe a wake-up call putting him in timeout uh if you want to put it you know put it in those terms uh, but with the uh, the injuries to Milwaukee he's back up again and right now Eric sogard uh, is, is still is still playing a little bit but um Tyler Saladino was the guy that got hurt and is why RC is back it remains to be seen if Arcee gets put back in at shortstop and uh, or or not but he just a young, a young kid, I thought he was a lot like Tim Anderson and, you know, both young, both questionable skill sets as far as taking a walk, but had the ability to run and a little bit of power. So uh, Timmy Anderson has turned out to be okay. Um, Arcia hasn't, so I, I'm not giving up on him yet. He's probably going to be hitting, still going to be hitting low in the order with the Brewers. The Brewers, I think that their their entire lineup is, 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 is bound to get better. Yelich is doing his thing. Kane's doing his thing. Um, I think that, that, that team will warm up as the weather warms as well. So I do expect better things out of Arcia. But the end of, this, end of the season, the numbers are going to be disappointing. So he may be a guy that, you know, uh, I, I, I wait on middle infield and grab him and grab another disappointing middle infielder and knock on wood. One of the two of them, you know, does what we thought he would do.
0: And we have to give Tim Anderson credit where it's due. He's gone from being like laughably low in, in walk rate. I've, you know, we see all those stats from previous years where he had less walks than he had, you know, ground ball triples off his ankle and stuff like that. And uh, here he is at 8% walk rate, which
7: is not outstanding, but it's league average, and it's a huge step forward for him in that regard. He was in double digits for a while. I don't think any either of us expected to maintain a double-digit walk rate but I think we expect it. I mean, any, you don't completely lose the improved eye, and that's kind of exactly what's happened. It's dropped, but it's it's now kind of leveled off. You know, eight percent, that's fine. You know, nowadays, especially you know, a guy that makes pretty decent contact, eight percent. You know, you you know, you kind of you like to do- eyeball the double digit, at least ten percent. But I think you have to sort of re- rejigger your baselines for a lot of things. In this new atmosphere, in this new lat- landscape, and you know, it's, it's nice to see double digits. You're trained to see double digits, but if I see an eight or a nine, I'm not so uh, I'm not so upset anymore.
0: Especially if it's from a guy whose previous record was one or two, it, it just represents such a huge amount of growth. And I remember years ago, again, a, a research piece that I did for Baseball HQ, it's uh, that, that an increase in walk rate, which we used to think was kind of tied into an increase in batting average, actually isn't, but it is tied to an increase in power, and we're seeing that.
7: Yeah, I'm actually just looked to see, where he's, he, in the past month, Anderson's walked 10 times and 114 at bat, so you know it's it's a little bit under ten percent, but that's exactly what we're seeing. And you're right, you've done the research and it corroborated previous research that walk rate. You know, I think it kind of speaks to what it was kind of leaning towards with Altuve before. Uh, you're more selective with pitches. If you're more selective, you're you're out. You're able to pick out a good one and uh, and send it over the fence. So that's you know what that's what walk rate tends to do is as far as why uh, it favors power is because you're able to really drive the ball when you wait on it. So. And I think the reverse of it being sometimes when you when you're selective, if you don't get that cookie by waiting, now you are just having to put the ball in play, and maybe that's where the average gets negatively negatively affected.
0: And of course, if he walks a little more, he can steal a little more. He's an excellent base dealer. He's 12 and one, I think, this year, and he's always been good at uh, at base stealing percentage he very rarely gets caught mm-hmm. he just seems to have the knack as well as the speed uh when are you doing the rest of these uh comparisons uh pre to current
7: the outfield will be filed within the next hour or so and then it's in the hands of the editors and with a lot going on i can't promise it'll be up on roto air today but it will be up on the definitely in the morning it was actually going to be a three-parter but um there's so much good there's so much interesting stuff with the outfield that i decided to i'm sorry two-parter uh decided just to break it into three there's just a the, the You know, is a little bit of a tease, the top of the outfield charts are pretty much chalk. But once you get to the back end of, a- of each, you get to some nice surprises. And there's some nice comparisons. And for this, uh, you know, little gratuitous plug, and this is kind of where I came up with the tout table from this week, was um, uh, comparing some top 40 outfielders to date, asking people who they preferred from going forward, Michael Brantley or Nick Markekis, uh Mitch Hanniger or Odobel Herrera, Shinju Chu or Matt Kemp. To Oscar Hernandez and Malik Smith. These were all, you know, surprises in the top 40, kind of close to each other. And I think they're all kind of a neat comparison with, you know, Hernandez and Smith are both kind of young players. Chew and Kemp, both kind of some ve- veterans. And Brantley and Marquecas, I think, you know, they're both over 30. This some veterans. And Hanniger and Herrera, both, you know, young, have shown stuff in the past. And, and so I think it's kind of a... Uh, it was kind of an interesting, you know, I had no idea what my question was going to be for today until I started to do the the Z-Files Z piece. I like, wow, I can make a question out of this because, you know, I was going to write about these, so, you know, I'll write about them, but why not make the uh, the question? So I think it's kind of a cool little uh, a cool little tout table, round table that we do. will we'll come out uh, early next week. It's kind of, you know, sort of latently based upon the, uh, the Z-Files that I'm writing.
0: I'll take Brantley, Hanager Kemp, and Malik Smith.
7: Okay, well, I'll no, noted now you just have to write it down with a reason and you get I'll make you famous. I have to have a reason. well, you know whatever if you if you're reading an article, do you want to have a little bit of a a little reason or you just want to f- see four names and we're not I'm not asking for an entire paragraph, but anyway, so yeah, no,
0: there'll be a reason. no Todd <laughs> uh, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. It's interesting as always, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about alternative categories for pitching. Master Notes has been wondering about how player values might change if we change the fantasy categories. Two weeks ago we looked at hitters, changing home runs to total bases and batting average to on-base. The result was that players like Bryce Harper, Freddie Freeman and Trey Turner moved up the value charts while J.D. Martinez, Ozzie Albies and Starling Marte fell down. This week, a little later than first promise I know, we'll look at pitchers, again changing categories to see how player values change with them. In this exercise, we'll make three different category changes, then use the Baseball HQ Custom Draft Guide to revalue all the players using different category combinations. The settings were a 70-30 hit pitch split, a balanced valuation model, and no scarcity adjustment. What I was interested in knowing was whether the value distributions between starters and relievers would change. As well, I scanned through the new value list to see which individual pitchers gained or lost significant value. Then I went and sat on my deck, tuned into the radio broadcast of one of my fantasy pitcher starts, and enjoyed a cold Balls Falls Session IPA from Bench Breweries of Beamsville, Ontario. And no, they didn't pay for the plug. The first task was to set a baseline for the standard 5x5 five five categories. Through Tuesday's games of this week, the top 135 pitchers, representing 15 teams worth of 9 fantasy pitchers each, was 56% starters, 44% relievers. The pitcher value split was a little more heavily tilted towards starters, 62-38%. to 38%. The average starter value was $9, the average reliever just under 7 Starters dominated the top of the value list, with 15 of the top 25 pitcher seasons to date, including all of the top 10. The question was how those values and value distributions might change if the categories were changed in these fashions. First, use quality starts instead of wins. Everybody loves to hate wins because they're fickle, luck-based, unpredictable, unprojectable, and frustrating. And those are their good points. I'd actually rather use the Ryan quality start of seven innings with three or fewer earned runs, which is available from the Better Commissioner Services, but not yet among the categories this custom draft guide includes. For now, anyway. Second, use net relief instead of saves. I have to admit that when I first saw net relief as a category, I thought of the high-speed internet, and then of the antacids I chew on when I'm watching my fantasy team's nightly stats on my high-speed internet. But actually, net relief was saves plus holds minus blown saves. This seems to be an improvement on saves alone, which are right up there with wins as aggravating scoring events. Still, net relief is not perfect because the hold is not perfect. A reliever can get a hold only if he enters the game in a save situation. If he enters a tie game or a game with his team down, he cannot get a hold or a save, even if he pitches perfectly. That is, he can hold the game in its current state for his team and still not get any scoring reward. And then if he induces a grounder that goes right through the third baseman's legs, they'll score at a hit. Baseball scoring stinks. I also checked what the value effects would be if I changed both of the above categories. And the short answer? Well, the differences weren't all that dramatic. The top starters, Verlander, Scherzer, Cole, Sale, Kluber, DeGrom, they stayed on top of the list, although in all the changed environments, their value rose a buck or so apiece. Some lower-valued pitchers gained more significant value here and there, and some lesser pitchers dropped some value here and there, occasionally enough to fall out of the top 135, and therefore to no longer being rosterable. Let's start by looking at quality starts replacing wins. Overall, the value change here was pretty negligible, with starting pitcher value and reliever value staying at that 62-38% split. I had thought that starting pitcher value would rise and relief pitcher value would fall because of all the vulture wins being lost by the bullpenners and quality starts gained by some starting pitchers. The other change was in the distribution of starting pitcher value. Garrett Richards dropped out of the top 135 altogether. He has won fewer quality starts than he has wins. And Chris Archer got in with six quality starts but only three wins. That seems like an improvement. As noted, there wasn't a lot of movement at the very top or bottom of the starting pitcher value list, but three starters did make very big jumps, all the way up into the top 35. Kyle Gibson was barely rosterable at the number 128 slot in regular scoring, but jumped 48 spots and added $2.91 in value when quality starts were counted. Gibson has just one win, but he has six quality starts. Make note of that in case you're thinking about a replacement pitcher for your team. The White Sox' Ronaldo Lopez topped all starters with a $3.47 value gain. He jumped up 44 overall places and into the top 40 of starters. He, too, has only one win, and he has seven quality starts. And his decimals, 293-117. Again, don't be sleeping on Ronaldo Lopez. Trevor Cahill has 5 quality starts but only 1 win, and he also gained almost $3 in value, climbing up into the top 40 among starters and into the top 70 of pitchers overall. Finally, with 8 quality starts but only 6 wins, remember quality starts count more heavily because there are fewer of them, Tanner Rourke picked up more than $3 and jumped 27 overall slots into the top 20 among starting pitchers and the top 30 among all pitchers. Some of the big decliners, Jay Happ, Eduardo Rodriguez, and David Price. The relievers who gained value were those who had significant saves totals, pretty much as we'd expect as the starters fell. Changing net relief for saves was not a surprise. Giving more relievers paths to value resulted in more relievers reaching the top 135 rosterability threshold. Although I'm not actually sure rosterability is even a word. The starter-reliever number split rose a couple of points in the reliever's favor, while the value split actually moved a little bit towards starters. The two big gainers were hybrid relievers. Lefty fireballer Josh Hader became the top reliever on the board, adding more than a dollar because his six saves were buttressed by eight holds. Similarly, Adam Ottavino saw a value jump of $4 plus, thanks to his 12 holds. Jeremy Jefferson and Joe Kelly also climbed both of them into double-digit value. The big value drops were all the closers, led by Edwin Diaz and Wade Davis, who lost more than $6 apiece when their regular values, driven by league-leading saves totals, suddenly had reduced impact. The idea of including holds in the category was to add value to non-closer relievers, who would lose out, as noted, in a quality starts environment because they wouldn't get credit for their vulture wins. And it seemed to work, as the overall category values were more compressed and seemed a little more fair. Finally, I ran the custom draft guide with both the quality starts change and the net relief change. There were big gains for some setup guys like Archie Bradley, Matt Barnes, Ottavino, and Chris Davensky. The biggest drops again included saves-only guys, focusing on the ones with pedestrian or worse decimals like Shane Green, Fernando Rodney, and Alexander Colomay, as well as some starters like Brandon McCarthy, Brent Suter, and Chris Stratton. Overall, the pitcher value proposition still weighed significantly towards starters. Feeding some value into the haters and Devenskis of the game seemed like a positive outcome, given how valuable they are to their real-world teams. The major gain was de-emphasizing wins and saves, which was kind of the point at the outset. Once again, I don't believe for a minute that any of this will generate excitement for getting rid of wins and de-emphasizing saves from scoring methods. I still think they should be replaced to get a broader and fairer way to assess actual pitchers. And it was more than a few years ago when we started hearing some fantasy writers suggesting on-base percentage should replace batting average, and that change has taken hold in many leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. Masternotes columnist at baseballhq.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e newsletter. Just go to baseballhq.com and sign up. You can also read Masternotes for free at the Baseball HQ website, and of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. <laughs> and that's baseball hq radio for friday june the first thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 19 of the 2018 fantasy baseball season i also want to thank our guest for this friday full edition scott pianowski from yahoo sports scott's a wonderful guy one of my favorite guests on this podcast i also want to thank our regular commentators from baseball the best fantasy baseball website in the business our market watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our minor league minute was presented by Baseball HQ minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our pitcher matchups report was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well, and as always, to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator, and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you get your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. Lisa and I are going to Toronto next weekend for a concert, a nice dinner out with our daughter, and a Jays game. So Baseball HQ Radio will be on hiatus for the week. We'll be back in two weeks with our next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long.